I didn't hit record. All right, I want to hear you talk about me again. It's, it's all about me. I'm looking forward to asking the same question. My fingers are crossed that Shannon's going to answer it with the same level of care and detail. Now I'm going to simplify it and be like, oh, I don't want to do anything. Uh, let's, let's go. Take, take two, honestly. Live from the Talking Joe Studios, it's Talking Joe. Talking Joe, weekly podcast. Talking Joe's there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the code name for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. The podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated Talking Joe, Joe is on the air. I also the most professional because I always remember to hit record the first time round. Today we will be looking at G.I. Joe issue 283 with a very special guest. But before we get into all of that, let me introduce the Sherlock Holmes to my Watson. It's my co host, a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners and viewers. Excellent stuff. Um, but we won't go on too long because today we have with us comic book artist and twiglet aficionado, Shannon S.L. Gallant. Shannon joined Chief and S.Jubs back in episode 86 in August 2020, where they discussed the death of Snake Eyes, but mostly snacks. Uh, Shannon has penciled more issues of G.I. Joe than any other artist, with over 100 issues to his name across several series. Starting with 2009, G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra movie prequel series, followed by nine issues or so on Chuck Dixon's G.I. Joe run before starting a long run on Larry Hammer's IDW ARA run, starting in issue 161 in December 2010, which lasted all the way until 245 in 2017, where he took a break for the G.I. Joe versus Six Million Dollar Man limited series before returning for a standalone issue 263 and back for this issue 283. Whew. Uh, and that wraps up the interview. Thank you for your time, <laughs> Shannon. Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Very good to have you. Uh, I guess my, my initial question is, after all of this time, what is it like coming back? Uh, it's just different. No, it, it's just it's a, a chance to play with things that you used to work on for a long time and try out things that you want to do and try and make things look different and fresh and not look like the same old crap. Uh, so without, without getting into uh, who inked the issue, which I think is a big part of how the approach of this issue might be different, uh, what about the storytelling or the penciling is different this time around? Can you pinpoint something? Well, as as uh, as you kind of point out, the the one thing that is different on this issue is the inking. Um, 
originally when I was doing the series and I was on it for, for such a long time, I went through, you know, Gary Erskine was the original inker on it, and then Gary left and Brian came in and Brian and I kind of did the rest of the run together. You know, when Gary was on the book, we would have to have guest pencilers kind of come in and do fill-in issues, and that was always frustrating for me because people would be, in, you know, drawing something and I would have to reference it, but they hadn't finished drawing it yet, and so I was kind of drawing blind, and that was a frustration. And then when Brian came on the book, uh, there was an event in G.I. Joe where they wanted to do like two issues a month for like some kind of summer event. And that just kind of highlighted my frustration of having to reference something that hadn't been drawn yet by someone else. And so after that, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to double my output during when I'm on the book so that I can keep the book coming out on time and I only have to reference myself. And so I, I went from doing a page a day to two pages a day. But I could do that because Brian and I had already been working together for enough time that I could just indicate something on a page and Brian would know what to do with it. He would know how to you know, ink it in or fill it in or whatever. And so the biggest difference is, you know, when he was on the book, I, I didn't have to do this fully rendered out thing to kind of get the message across to him as an inker. And this time around, because of how the inking was done, I got to focus more about what the inks would actually look like because I was controlling it more. Uh, and that, and, and, you know, it was stuff that I had been playing with on my own on the side because I'm a, a big Jackson Geist fan. And Butch has a style that's very shadow-oriented, like Michael Lark or, you know, the classic Alex Toth or um, even the, the recently passed Jean-Paul Leon. And mm. I love that style. I love that kind of heavy shadow, you know, movie quality. And that's, you know, Larry had written a script that was basically like a movie plot, like a Michael, you know, Jason Bourne mm. or a Mission mm. Impossible film. And so I wanted it to feel more like a movie. And to do that, you have to have a more realistic approach to, to stuff. And I didn't want it to look as cartoony as it had in the past. You know, when I was penciling for Brian, it was a very linear style. I was just keeping the basic information and moving on because we were trying to maintain a schedule. You know, I was trying to keep the book coming out on time, but not have to have a fill in artist. And because of scheduling and way Larry turns in scripts, you didn't get a full month all the time to do 20 pages. I, and so I would do it in two weeks. And when I say two weeks, I treat my, my work like a job. I don't, I try not to work on the weekends. And okay. so that's Monday through Friday, and so I'd do two pages a day, so that's 10, and then the next week another 10, and since it's a 20-page issue, you know, that, that would be the book. And would you, would you also try and keep to, like, a, a regular working hour as well to that, to that extent? Would you try and do a 9 till 5 and, and protect your, your evenings? Yeah. Or, or was that just impossible with, with deadlines? Not with Joe, because, you know, and I, I just finished up a Godzilla book, and that it was pressing for me. I mean, it, it's been a chore. Like, it, this dream project turned into kind of a kaiju problem. Um, but, yeah, I try I try to maintain it, like, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, treat it like a job, take lunch at the same time, you know, mm -hmm. just kind of maintain that schedule. And when I'm working, I, I kind of check the clock. I'm like, okay, i got to get this panel done. i got to get this done. i got to get, you know, I don't. I've never understood the idea that, oh, I'm going to work until 3 a.m. and get up at 6, because that kills you over time. I, just, yeah, I, I personally can't maintain that kind of schedule. Yeah, I think there's this there's this kind of archetypal idea of a suffering artist where yeah, screw that. you kind of <laughs> you know, have to inflict this pain on yourself and end up with a, 
you know, back problems, wrist problems. Oh, um, I've got those. <laughs> okay. I've, well, I've earned that. Yeah. There, but there's also, uh, there's also a difference between the like 24 year old artist who's new to comics, who wants every job to wow the editor and any potential future editor and the artist who's been in, who's been working steadily for five or 10 years, who is, who has some assurance that they have relationships and connections, right? So, well, I don't you, have any. If you have some, pass them on. Okay. So, well, I mean, what I, what I, okay, what I mean is, you have you have a reputation for quality and reliability. The like younger version of you that's just breaking into comics, or the the twenty five year old artist who's not you, and someone else may work weekends and late because it's like, oh, this is the job that's going to get me noticed by a different editor, and then. Uh, and then I'll get like the the next job or something closer to a dream job. Yeah, and I, I understand that, and I, I think there's still kind of some of that attitude there, but that's for me. I'm kind of trying to channel that energy into doing something new, doing something fresh. Um, I think that's one of the reasons I love Jackson Guy so much. Is if you look at his early work, you know, back when he was like on Micronauts or you know, Swords of the Swashbuckler or his early days, and you know, even stuff before that. He's, he, you wouldn't suspect that's the same artist as what you see in mm. his work now. He, he's grown completely as an artist from this young kid starting out to this fully developed, as far as I'm concerned, one of the masters of storytelling. And, and granted, I'm not putting myself on that level, but that's what I'm aspiring to be, is, is someone that constantly grows. The other artist in that sort of similar pan- pantheon of... Um... Uh, like Steve Steve Epting and comparing yeah. his early early work um, in, for example, Avengers versus his run on on Captain Captain America, or, yeah. or kind of the uh, the level of work that Michael Lark has has reached in in um, uh, for, for his work on on Lazarus. Yeah. You know these these artists started off pretty pretty great to begin with, but but have just you know refined it into into almost a, you know an entirely different look and and just quality. Well, yeah, and, and you can look at, I mean, like Brian Hitch did, did, does not look oh, yeah. anything yeah, yeah, yeah. now like what he did. You know, he went through his whole Alan Davis clone phase. But the, you look at his stuff now, and it's totally different. I wanted to ask some specifics about the inking here, because uh, it is striking how different it looks. Not just the subtlety of your inking yourself, not one of these other two artists, but the specific approach. I'm seeing a little more detail in small uh, uh okay in the opening scene there's a uh, it's a crowded dense scene because it takes place in a city and it's uh, a chase and there are lots of uh, additional extra characters um so i'm seeing in the inking more detail more lines and a lot of thin lines right i'm looking at chuckles's hair i'm looking at uh the taxi driver um, and so when you mention uh, Jackson Geis, that, that does ring a visual bell for me. But I'm also wondering, what, what do you ink with? And what did you ink with with this issue that if you had inked yourself previously, you may not have inked with? Well, uh, you know, I have, I have the pleasure or, or the self-torture of actually being in communication with Butch. And Butch will send me pencils and then copies of the inks of his stuff. And I've had the courage or the stupidity to, you know, reverse that and send him what I've done. Inking his pencils? No, 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 no. Like, I'll send him what I've done. Okay. As far as, like, my work. And Butch will, inherently, he'll look at it and go, oh, you just depend, didn't you? 
I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh, you used a marker, didn't you? Yeah. You didn't use a brush, did you? No. <laughs> and and Butch is, you know, he's a master of the tools, and he he'll call you out. Like he he doesn't he doesn't care. And unfortunately, because of the schedule on this book, I was using pens and markers, and trying to just kind of get it out on time, but still kind of capture that look that I wanted it to have. So yeah, I, I, most of what I used was kind of like the micron pens for the really fine lines. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I'm a big fan of the kind of like, I think they're the Pentel brush pens. Yeah, and yeah. really it's just so you don't end up sitting there spending the time cleaning the brush, inking, you know, put, dipping it in the ink. It's keep it going. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm penciling, I used to like to use the old two millimeter leads, but I spent half my time sharpening the damn thing. <laughs> and so to keep the schedule, when I was working with Brian, I switched to just a click pencil, you know, because mm-hmm. it's faster. I, that doesn't sound like much, but over the period of a month or whatever, that time adds up. Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, particularly, I guess when you're working at a on the smaller scale paper that, that you often have, that I guess you do need a more a finer line to be able to to fit in that that detail once it's you know at that scale. Yeah, and I'm and I, I'm trying to get in detail. I mean, I love the little Easter egg things and, and to make people feel like it's fully fleshed out, but yeah, you can't, I can't do it with a brush. I, I know Butch can probably like ink a microchip with a brush, but I, <laughs> I can't do it. Do you consider experimenting with inking digitally? Uh, I, I ink cause I also do Beano when I'm, when I'm doing Beano, which is the other thing that I do. That's like my, basically my day gig right now. Uh, I ink and color that digitally. Okay. It's okay. I I just enjoy the feel of, you know, something in my hand. Even though I'm using a pencil, there's a different feel, like a brusher or a pen or pencil to paper than there is tablet pen to tablet surface. Even if you have one of those plastic sheets that's supposed to simulate paper, it never feels the same. There's no give in in the tool like the, you know, the Apple pencil or mm-hmm, whatever, there's mm-hmm. just no give in it. Even when I was using a, a Wacom, it, the pen never responded the way I wanted it to, and it was bulky and you couldn't change it. And I love changing up pencils constantly just because it helps my hand. Uh, you don't end up with that like you're... Okay. You know what you I just mean? Just have like a different, the, different shape in your, yeah. in your hand. That, yeah. That, yeah. And that's, you're not kind of locked in that one position. Yeah, and it's also the, the diameter of it, and so your hand doesn't get cramped into that one side mm, mm. interesting I haven't thought about that yeah um, I, read, I read that in like one of these like self-help artists you know like how to keep yourself healthy as an artist kind of things and they were talking about people don't think about that but it does end mm. up affecting your hand just from being at the same size all the time so I, I had a thought just looking at you know talking about your your approach of inking yourself versus and, and how you would work with with Brian previously and, and that that opening panel of this this issue where there there's just you know this scene with just so much going on and I think you know a previous you know fast approach where you're where you're leaving a lot of room for for the inker to pick up the, the fine detail I, I imagine doing a panel like like that one would be a harder ask of your your inker where there's just so much detail that the to, to fill in the blanks 
Uh, I used to pretty much ask Brian to do a lot of detail anyway, and, <laughs> okay. and, and how much of it he kept in or, or, or left out, I, you know, I'm, I don't remember specifics of, but a lot of this I would have just simplified down um, mm -hmm. or left a lot up to Brian. Like the original description in the script was Larry wanted to make sure that there were all these kind of cables to really kind of mm. relate what it's like to be in these Asian countries. You know, the script, the story isn't actually set there, but Larry in the script said, okay, it's basically Bangkok pretending to be okay. this fictional town. And they <laughs> I have... Won, I did wonder. Yeah, I mean, it, it's set in Thailand. Um, and and it was down to the point where I want the cabs to look like Thai cabs, uh, cabs yeah. and so forth. But his big thing was there are always cables. So they just have lines everywhere. And so that was one of the things about the drone was having problems going through right you know the cabling so i would have probably just kind of indicated a couple and told brian left a little note of like add more cables because mm -hmm. you know? uh -huh. that's kind of a last minute detail you you do everything else and then you ruin it by drawing a cable over it so. <laughs> yeah did you did you pencil differently uh knowing you would be inking yourself did you pencil less no i'm horrible at that I, I know guys can do that. Like Butch sends me his pencils and I'm like, how the hell did you know what was going on when you went to ink it? He's like, oh, I just know. And, um, <laughs> but I can't, for some reason, my brain doesn't work that way. And I have to put the detail in the pencils so that I know what I'm trying to do. So yeah, it didn't, it didn't really save me any time on that end. And, and I know you've spoken before when you, you were talking about this, when you were talking to chief uh, on the last episode, that, you you have worked at a smaller scale for for this issue. Were you back at back at uh, on a, a regular art board, comic art board, or or were you again sticking to that smaller smaller scale? I've kind of shifted not up to like a full eleven by seventeen sheet like a lot of norm. You know, most guys are working at. You know, they're working at that kind mm -hmm. of. I don't know what the British equivalent is, but I'm I've started using this Japanese paper and I guess their size and what they call it is a B4 and it's about 11 by 13 or something like that or whatever so it's not quite as big as a normal US comic page size paper but it's not the old eight and a half by 11 that I used to work at for the first part of jail so it's it's slightly larger but a lot of that has to do with just the paper quality. Like, I, I like the, this Japanese paper. I just think it's a better paper. Um, and that's the largest it comes in. When you're on that smaller scale, was that, did that coincide with, you know, you were talking about sort of having to, to speed, speed up and, and sort of slight, adapting your approach slightly differently when, when Brian um, started as, as well? It was, was that all joined to, together or did it happen in, in a slightly different sequence? Uh, no, I was, well, I was, I was drawing at the smaller size before I was on Joe, back when I was doing the prequels, I was rendered, I, we were scanning from pencils and filling in all the blacks with a pencil was taking forever. And I was too stupid to just kind of fill it in, in the computer. And so I, I started drawing at the smaller size so I could render everything out and then scan it just to save time. Uh, takes less time to fill an eight and a half by eleven than it does to fill an eleven by fourteen. Uh, so that was just a habit I had gotten into then, and I, what convinced me to do that was I saw some original Travis Cheris pages, and his were on eight and a half by eleven. And I thought, well, hell, you know, if it's okay for him to do it, it should be okay for me to do it. 
And so that's when I started that. And I was talking to Jeremy, the late Jeremy Dale, and he goes, do your original sell? Because people don't seem to want to buy the smaller stuff when I do it. And I said, no, I hadn't really thought about it. And so I started shifting up slightly more for mm-hmm. the, the second secondary market thing of selling originals. And they did right. sell better. So that was another reason I kind of started to move up. But I, I don't like working huge. It's, I, don't, I don't feel like I can see the whole page at once. And so I, I, that's one of the reasons I like working a little bit smaller. And that's one of the things I don't like working about on, on the iPad is when I'm drawing, I feel like I still don't get to see the whole page, even though you can reduce it down. When you mm-hmm. want to do detail, you zoom in and then you lose everything. There's no peripheral vision of where this part falls on the page. So it's it's always been a problem for me. I'm I'm nothing but a problem child. So <laughs> when when did you draw this issue, and how long did it take? This I think it was in April, if I remember correctly, or, or just before April. And I had a little bit longer than normal because I was going to be inking myself. Um, and originally, it was just to get the book back on schedule to help them maintain their schedule. And it wasn't supposed to come out for like another week or something. I don't know. And then suddenly they decided to release it early. I, I, I don't know why. But yeah, it's been, it's been in the can for a few months. So how, how long did you have to draw it? Or, or how long did you take to draw it? I, I know I penciled it in my, my normal rate, which is two pages a day. And that was kind of a challenge because of the, all the referencing in it you know, from the Thailand end of it. Um, and then the inks, I was trying to do two pages a day for the inks, but I think it was coming out to more like a page and a half, just because that's not my comfort zone. It's a little harder for me, and especially trying to be, you know, trying to channel my inner butch, which, you know, obviously <laughs> did not happen. Yeah, it just took a little longer because I was very insecure about, oh, okay, if I do this, is it going to look right? And am I going to have to start the whole page over? You know, that kind of thing. Interesting. Is is that is that a phenomenon that occurs that you'll you'll get as far as almost completing a, a page, then just sort of stepping back, looking at it, and going, no, um, I can do better than that. Um, let's let's start let's start again. Um, square one, or 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 is the or does or does the deadline just mean that you just just can't do that? Yeah, <laughs> it's the latter. Uh, usually, if I if I've screwed up something at the beginning of the page, I'll start over depending on how far in I am. But yeah, if I get near the end of it and I screw something up, I might do a patch, you know, mm-hmm. just like, okay, I'll just redo this panel, which I think I did one or two in the book. Uh, I did go back and just kind of like decide, no, that didn't look right, and I'm just going to redo this panel and plop it in. But I try not to do that. I try to get it right mm-hmm. or as close as I can the first time. But even in conversations with Butch, ne- we're never happy. You're never going to be happy with anything in the end. <laughs> he, he doesn't like anything. I'll, I'll send him notes and just be like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And he goes, yeah, it's crap. Because we're talking about sort of the, the time to, to cre- create things that, you know, you hit the, you know, the monthly deadline for the, for the book for, for almost the entirety of uh, the, the run. There were a few, uh, few sort of fill-in artists during your, your run. I was just flicking, th- th- flicking through it and, and seeing there's a, a handful of issues from the likes of Ron Wagner, Ron Friends, uh, Sergio Corelio and, and Paolo uh, Villanini. And, and certainly, you know, it's, in, it's sort of in, incredible to have an, an artist on, on the, the book, a, a, you know, a mainstream book for 
the kind of uh, runs that, that 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 you have, you know, outside of the likes of Ryan Otley on Invincible and Charlie Adlard on Walking Dead and Eric Larson on on Savage Dat Dragon. It's it's not a phenomenon we get to to experience too much as as um, comic readers. So that you know, incredible you know run and consistency is is uh, a real gift to us as as readers. That that was a bit of waffle before I was going to say sort of the uh, talking bringing it back to what we were talking about, which was kind of the time that we need to t- that, that you need to take some some of these things. That I think what was it Cobra World Order that was was that hitting weekly? And I know that there was the the Paolo Villanelli couple of issues, three issues in the run up to to that. Was that was which I'm assuming was to give you a bit of a buffer to to hit that that deadline. But you know what. Um, you know, in that run, what was what was the quickest that you were able to turn out a single issue, or or, or, or was asked to to turn out a single issue? Yeah, that that was kind of when we decided, or I decided that you know I was tired of having people do fill-ins, and so I think back before that, I was only doing about a page a day because that was kind of the the expectation mm. of oh you're going to do a page a day and then the book will be done in, within a month. But then when they decided to do that whole event where there were like multiple issues coming out in a month, I was I, we were getting pressed in the idea of like to crank stuff out. And so that was kind of my first foray into doing more than a page a day and realizing, okay, well, this, the Joe universe is kind of a set universe in the sense of you know the references are going to be one of these toys, one of these characters. And when you've built up a library of references, you don't need to go outside looking for stuff. And by that point, I had built up this whole library, or at least knew exactly where to go to get the few things that I was missing, to make the cut down the research time. Mm-hmm. And which I don't think editors or anybody really thinks about. And that really is a huge chunk of your time, especially if you're referencing something heavily, like in this case, it was Thailand. So you spend a lot of time trying to track down all these references. If if you're <laughs> like me, you want it to look a certain way. And for me, I want if someone goes into, you know, a, a shop in Thailand, I want it to look like a shop in Thailand, which does not look like the Safeway around the corner from my house. It's <laughs> um, just that kind of thing. Or like, as for example, the cab. When you get into a Thai cab, they're decorated a certain way mm, because that's mm. the culture. And so I wanted it to ring true, and Larry wanted it to ring true. To For all the problems I may have had with Larry, the one thing I can say is when you got a script, he told you exactly what he wanted. Especially in terms of guns or, you know, military equipment. But with this tie issue, he was very specific. I want cables, you know, running through the city. I want the tie cabs to have, you know, their their charms and, and ornamentals that they put inside the car. And so you have to look that stuff up. You have to find those references, and it takes a while because, you know, a lot of the time you you can type it in in English, but you're not going to get the results that you would if you could speak Thai or Chinese well, yeah. or you know Japanese, which I can't. So it, it takes a little more time to track down something on somebody's trip blog or wherever you're going to find it. I think about this every so often, the, the time it takes to design costumes or settings. And uh, a friend of mine told me that when, uh, when Chris Anka was drawing Runaways from Marvel, I think this was three years ago, four years ago, there's a scene that takes place in... 
uh, I forget her name, but it's the youngest member of the Runaways, who's who's a technically a mutant. She's the one with the uh, she always has like cat ears. Mm. Um, I want to say and, Molly. Yes, thank you. There's a scene that takes place in Molly's bedroom, and uh, Anka is a great uh, artist and storyteller and designer, right? Like think of his his uh, his costume designs for Marvel. So he actually paid an artist, like a designer, to do. A, I guess it was a schematic of Molly's bedroom because she's, I don't know, 10 or 12 in the story. And a 10-year-old or 12-year-old's bedroom uh, in, I don't know, the suburbs or the city is going to look a certain way. And that's time that he either didn't have to figure that out before then actually drawing the scene there. And, you know, it's like one page or two pages, or maybe it was recurring. Um, Or maybe he had the time, but uh, as good as a designer as he is, not the expertise. And I think about all of the embedded time and research uh, and brain power that goes into drawing comics. You know, it's like you have to be able to draw horses, um, buildings, uh, machine guns, and folding clothes, right? Plus, like, um, anatomy, acting poses, faces, and hands, right? You have to be able to draw everything and anything. And then on top of that, like, you know, there's, like, one fight scene in Times Square, and then at the end of the issue, like, some new no-name supervillain team shows up and they're all going to disappear in a panel but you still have to draw a bunch of costumes and uh where the editors are uh not necessarily building into into the schedule laying all that groundwork but i remember when uh when the x office in 1995 published the age of apocalypse right this four-month event where all the titles changed all the characters were different all the costumes were different and several artists who weren't drawing the books did character designs ahead of time. And some of those made it out in like uh, backup pages or reprints or sketchbook specials. Um, and I, I think Marvel still does that with, with some events. Um, but you make a good point about <clears throat> just Googling, you know, downtown Bangkok or taxi or taxi interior. And that takes... As, as easy as it is now to Google it rather than to go to the library or collect magazines, uh, suddenly it's probably a half hour, hour, two hours later, you've got, you know, it's like, well, now I can draw this one machine gun, this other machine gun, uh, this one car, uh, but I haven't started the page yet. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that because one of the things, I, it seems like the industry's changed since I started and since, you know, like the early 2000s when... I think everybody was starting to get onto the internet. And I think there's this expectation now or a demand, an unwritten demand that everything be hyper accurate and people will call you out if anything is off. And so you end up spending just as much, if not more time doing research to try and get all those details correct. Some guys don't care. And I wish I had that luxury of just not giving a crap, but with Joe fans especially, they'll they'll call you out. Like they'll come up to the table and start chewing you out because you got like one detail wrong on you know a tank or you know, whatever their favorite toy was. And it's usually you can tell whatever their favorite thing was because that's what they get most upset about. As as a as a contrast, all of the artists in the '60s and '70s and '80s drawing New York, and it's you know Spider-Man swinging through sort of every part of New York looks like every part of New York and it's just tall buildings and somewhere you've got the Statue of Liberty or the Empire water State Building. You always have yeah. to have a water tower. That was like, the, you know, like, oh, they're in New York. There's a water tower. And, and the artists, the expectation for the artists 
wasn't the same. And also the readers similarly didn't have, the, you know, the same immediate immediate uh, uh, access to all of the reference such that, you know, some reader in, in Boise, Idaho could say, wait, that's not what Brooklyn looks like. Brooklyn's different than Manhattan. Yeah. And they'll do that. You know, now they'll they'll actually go out of their way to find out if you're wrong. And which is, you know, that's fine. I mean, that's part of the job, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. But I think we've lost a little bit of that ability to kind of just immerse ourselves into the story. We get, especially as fans, we tend to get so bogged down and check, double-checking everything they've done. You know, it's it's almost, there's almost a competition of who can point out the thing that's wrong fastest and, soon, you know, the quickest on the Internet. So it's almost like a dead, deadline rush, you know, like the minute the, the issue drops, everybody's in a mad dash to find the mistakes. And it, it, for me, as a fan, it kind of takes some of the fun out of it. You know, you get so bogged down in that that you can't enjoy just what's going on. But then again, you know, I get pissed off when stuff is wrong about the characters I like. <laughs> but shift, shifting gears a bit, if that's that's all right. I was thinking... Uh, last last time you were on the show, it, you were talking about uh, the the death of Snake Eyes, um, and and some of the work that was kind of in the run up to to, to that. Um, obviously, there was uh, a lot of issues um, af- after that that point, um, and uh, it's yeah, some very interesting uh, story story arcs. One of the I guess the the, the legacies sort of following that death of Snake Eyes was then the emergence of the the throwdown version of uh, of Snake Eyes. I was wondering how you went about that and felt felt about that, and and did you did you try and a- approach throwdown in a in a different way to to it just just being the same as the the regular Snake Eyes? Uh, I'll be honest, I don't know what you're talking about um, <laughs> because it was the only because I left the book like not long after. Snake left. Um, we introduced, I can't remember her name now. The, Dawn. Yeah, Dawn. And so it was kind of like we put Dawn into the costume, and then that was, that was about when I left. Mm. Um, that was when Natho Diaz took over. And, I'll, you know, it's one of those things, like, I'm, I'm done with it, and I walked away from it, and I haven't really looked at mm. hardly any of the Joe books since I left. You know, I did the, the kind of recap issue where... Storm Shadow goes to the, you know, they go to the monument. But yeah, I just, I just kind of walked away from it. I, I, mm. I always wasn't that thrilled with the idea that they killed off Snake Eyes to begin with. And I think I might have discussed this the last time of just, I, I felt like they lost the only real romance that they had in the book, which was yeah. Snake Eyes and Scarlet. And I thought that was a, a kind of a bad idea. Uh, for a lot of reasons, and, and one of them was there were fans that only read the book for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the part that they enjoyed the most. But as far as like whatever they did after, Larry's going to do what Larry's going to do. So it, whether you like it or not, you, you don't have a lot of say in it. Sure. Was was there anything from that, that later era that you worked out, worked on the, that sort of stood out as a, something you particularly enjoyed or, or was, a, was more of, of a... The highlights. So, for example, for, for me, I, I in, enjoyed the introduction of uh, Bomb Strike as a you know a new hero for for the book, a sort of a you know a character that had never really been featured before, and then was um, you know got a bit of time in the uh, you know in the limelight. 
Yeah, well, I, I enjoyed her her addition, as, as or like kind of putting her up more on a pedestal as a character. I enjoyed those issues a lot. I enjoyed when they had uh, was it the Red Skulls? Mm-hmm. The red, or, yeah, the Red Shadows. Yeah, there was a fun, yeah, some sort of fun return from from then. Um, there was a particular panel <laughs> that I really uh, in, enjoyed that that didn't make a lot of scientific sense, but but absolutely worked. Um, in terms of comic art, which was sort of the, sh- the shadow of um, uh, the red skull looming over uh, Spawn Strike, where um, the, the like the eyes of the, uh, the, the of the skull were didn't form a shadow, so it was like light, uh, um, you know, uh, passing passing through, and it, it kind of formed this you know brilliant kind of shadow silhouette uh, that absolutely worked uh, uh, as uh, as as art, but um, but but sort of maybe doesn't did not less less from a scientific point of view of how an, a shadow would actually be formed if uh, if that makes sense yeah and, that, and for me that was kind of one of the things i was always trying to do when i was on the book was is make it feel more like an 80s book or like a you know late 70s that kind of that era and i feel like the guys were allowed to take more liberties with reality in the sense of mm-hmm. it was drawn realistically or, or rendered realistically but they still played with the reality of things so they were going more for the design than they were for the reality of the shadow and so that was kind of harking back to that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and again i feel like we were talking earlier i think we've lost a lot of that ability to kind of see the playfulness or, or the uniqueness of the medium and that you don't have to necessarily always follow the rules if you're trying to make like a, a thematic statement of some sort and cover seemed to always be the place they did that the most mm-hmm. it was it was always that here's this odd shadow cast across the building that you would never actually get but we're we're kind of making a, a statement about what's inside the book or the theme of the book it was very will eisner and you know paper's never going to float into a form letters <laughs> you know that's never going to happen right yeah yeah but you see it spell out the spirit and it makes complete sense because it fits the theme of the book or the, or the feel of the book yeah, and I think you know, comics as a medium allows you to do certain things that don't work as you know as a film, for example. But but there's you can you can get away with a particular artistic you know you know flair element interpretation or uh, an element of silliness or playfulness that that maybe might might not fit a kind of more, that more realistic. Um, and, and film inter- interpretation that you know you can do certain things and, and have them work well within the me- the, the medium and um, you know, yeah. if you're doing a comic you should make the most of the fact that it is a is a comic and as, as, and I especially feel that way about covers I feel like covers now have just really gotten I don't know I wouldn't say lame but uh, it's always like one central figure standing in the middle of the cover it's like the movie poster problem. It's like every movie poster is, is a, someone standing in the center of the poster from a back shot looking over their shoulder with a, you know, something in their hand. Yeah, I miss, I miss the old covers where was, you never see word balloons on covers anymore. You never see, you know, a scene that's on the cover and you're like, oh, this is going to be great. And then it's never in the book, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, we, ju- we, just, yeah. Don't let it, we just don't play with it anymore. We were, we were only talking about that the other day, me and Tim. <laughs> uh, the, the, the feeling I go back to is my first issue of G.I. Joe is issue 90, where the cover has Road Pig dragging Clutch and Rock and Roll toward the camera down a hallway and on the wall. 
behind them, next to them, there's an, a sign with an arrow, and it's pointing to brainwave scanner. And <laughs> I didn't know what that was, um, but looking at this cover, I, I was immediately worried about the two Joes. I was aware that they were in their civvies. I was struck that it was Road Pig, a character that hadn't been on the show. You know, I think of this thing that uh, the writer Stephen Grant talks about, which is that the cover should ask a question and the interiors should answer it or generally should try to. And covers can certainly be exaggerations. You know, the whole issue, they're like in disguise. I think I want them in their regular costumes on the cover, that kind of thing. You know, if Snake Eyes isn't in the issue and there's three other Joes who are, the cover probably shouldn't be those three Joes plus Snake Eyes doing whatever, <laughs> right? To like uh, pump up sales. I also wonder that that worry that I had in like April or June of 1989, looking at that issue, I wonder how much of that magic is just sort of permanently gone because I'm an older, more experienced reader and, you know, like characters die and come back or no one really dies. So if the cover is making me worry, what's Road Pig doing to these two Joes, right? My first Joe story ever, that's a legitimate concern. By the time I've read my 500th Joe story, it's like, well, he's probably going to lock them up and they'll get away. Uh, I think maybe the word is, is uh, you were saying sort of fun and playful and maybe exaggerated. I think a word for me might be melodramatic, that covers are dramatic or stale. Um, but there's this, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of comics and G.I.J. very much, it's not, it's not reality, it's a heightened reality. Mm. And, you know, particularly when you have very bold inking uh, and very bold, more flat coloring. You know, like I think of... Um, uh, who did the cover for uh, the what was the, the was it the second or the first DC Marvel crossover in the seventies with uh, Superman and Spider Man on the cover? Is it Jose Luis Garcia Lopez? I can't remember. Probably, but... Um, but but everything about that cover, right? Like their their pose and whatever the sort of building or like spire or construction thing that Spider Man is on, such that he can be high up in the air with Superman and Superman is flying. Flat colors, right? That cover pops so much. And this might be a segue into talking about the covers of this issue, uh, which is a thing we do here at uh, Talking Joe. Um, Why not? Yeah. But uh, uh, you know, th- thick outlines and uh, fewer bold covers uh, colors um, do do make a cover pop. <laughs> yeah, the cover, of course, featuring uh, bold images of Al Kelbra and Sarawak Sally, uh, with the slogan. Who is Sarawak Sally? And will she stop the threat of the nuclear warhead? Is not what we got. Um, <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's get on uh, and talk about the this this issue, shall we? Yeah. Comic talk. Oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them. Tim and Mark discuss them. Whoa. Comic talk. Oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them, Tim and Mark discuss them, whoa! Okay, so the creative team, uh, writer Larry Hammer, artist S.L. Gallant on pencils and inks, uh, colours Jay Brown, letters Neil Utaki, senior editor Tom Waltz, editor Megan Brown, research specialist Diana Davies. The sit rep, Murder by Assassination, Part 3. The Joes were called to Washington, D.C. in order to explain their recent off-the-books operation in Springfield to rescue Snake Eyes. But the secret congressional subcommittee running the show was infiltrated by Cobra after a bloody battle between the Joes and a deadly Cobra operative. 
the Joes suspect the newest Cobra baddie, Al Cobra, is involved, and have and a covert team is dispatched to Southeast Asia to hunt him down. Dot dot dot. It's almost like a a Star Wars crawl that one. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Cover A with art by Andrew Lee Griffiths and colours by Jay Brown. Um, it's a lineup of a lot of the female Joes. Uh, we've got Sherlock, Jay, Jinx, Scarlet, Dawn, Covergirl, and Helix sort of gathered around a Wolverine tank. Uh, we're just missing probably Bomb Strike. Might be the only only obvious uh, exception there, not on the cover. Uh, but yeah, a good uh, a good lineup and uh, troll baiting as well. If the uh, if the reaction of some people on the internet <laughs> is to be believed, yeah, it's PC gone mad. Another issue just with girls in it. That's it's just the cover. But uh, there we go. Um, I like this cover a lot. Um, as with uh, two episodes ago or four episodes ago, I like Andrew Lee Griffiths' art. I do think. Um, his inking I think some thicker lines here and there to make characters pop from backgrounds um, that that would delight me the uh, the missiles coming out of the Wolverine have these red tips and I don't know if this is a a reference to like a re-release or a later version of the Wolverine Uh, my my brother had the Wolverine not me so I'm doing this from memory but Mm. it's light gray missiles and they don't have a second color on them um, so I don't mind the change for its own sake, but what happens with these 12 red tips right behind Dawn, right in front of, or right behind the A Real American Hero subtitle, um, the cover gets a little busy in that upper third, right below the word G.I. Joe. And I like the sunset, but uh, as, as I've said uh, in, in previous cases, um, I feel like a lot of times Jay Brown's colors the, the light is not consistent, and I'm seeing these characters lit sort of from the front, but I feel like the sunset is behind them. Shannon, any, any thoughts on on the cover? Uh, well, I hate Andrew, so... <laughs> no, he, he and I have a running thing about hating each other. But yeah, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that goes back to what we were talking about, like the cover doesn't necessarily relate to what's inside. And it's fine because, you know, you never know what, when you get the assignment what the stories are necessarily going to be about because Larry writes them a week before you get it. So <laughs> you do what you got to do. Yeah, and, and we should we should point out that uh, since I own a comic book store, I'm on the other end of this, right? Not just as like an impatient reader, but we look through a catalog and order comics two or three months ahead of time. And it's not just for our sake that we know roughly what the book's going to be. Uh, like, oh, this cover has these certain characters on it. I'm more excited. Or, oh, this artist drew this cover. I'm more excited. I'll order more. I'll push it more. It's that according to the terms of sale that are agreed upon by the publishers, the distributor, and the retailers, right, the stores, um, if a book is late, if the contents are significantly different, if the creative team is different, uh, if the cover is different, the book is then returnable in the direct market. Comic book stores can return copies for uh, unsold copies for money back. Uh, And the distributor doesn't want to deal with that. And the publisher doesn't want to take the small financial hit, which is why, you know, for decades, right, like books would get rushed, 
suddenly there would be seven inkers finishing a book. There'd be a fill-in artist, right, to just keep the trains running on time because uh, if a book is late, there are financial consequences. Uh, and also, you know, if 12 issues are supposed to come out a year, that's a certain guaranteed cash flow for the publisher. So when we have recently been interviewing some artists who've worked on issues and they've said, oh, yeah, I drew this cover long before I drew the issue, uh, I didn't know what the issue was going to be about, or we only had a general sense of what this issue was going to be about. I get the sense from um, editor Tom Waltz's uh, blurb in the letters page of the previous issue, right, that part three of this story is is sort of a narrative detour, but he assured us that it was still important and was still part of the story. Uh, and I get the sense that in writing the story, right, and making it up as he goes along, uh, Hama gets to the end of chapter three, and he's starting at the end of chapter two, and he needs to shift focus back to where uh, Al Cabra has been. Uh, and so I don't want to say that I'm assuming, like, everything changed, but I think, you know, this whole timeline of when the cover has to be in the catalog for the retailers to see it, to know what to order, versus when the issue gets written, when the issue gets drawn... Uh, these these don't always butt up against each other well. Well, they especially don't with Larry. Um, because, as I said before, Larry writes, you know, and you mentioned it, Larry writes as he goes along. Like, he's, he's it's almost like a sh you know, stream of consciousness just blurting out whatever he's going to do. And one of the weird things about Larry, too, is he also made a statement at one point where it was, well, I use whatever the cover is to kind of tell me where, what to right in the story, which I thought was kind of odd, but okay, I, I guess I get that. And Larry's, that's just the way Larry is, that's the way he operates, so it is difficult to kind of predict where the story's going to be in the cover when the writer himself doesn't know where he plans on taking it. I do know that Andrew, who, who is, did the issue that follows this, the story still takes place, there's still part of the story in Thailand, because mm. he was referencing some of the stuff that I had done in the book for his own pages. So there is a continuation there. I mean, it's not like this is one complete standalone. That you can read the story as a standalone because it's self-contained and a beginning and an end sort of situation. But the events do play out in other ways in following issues. So so to, so to a certain extent, it might be a, a standalone and in many other ways it's not. And I, I, the the other thing about this this cover, although it's you know not directly related to the in, inside, I guess as part of the overall storyline and the introduction of this new character Sherlock, I guess it's it's kind of you know a shorthand there is almost saying, look, here's here's Sherlock, and she's joining this pantheon of uh, of classic GI Joe female characters that have been introduced uh, over the the years, and sort of you know making a statement there in terms of. You know, this this character, you know, she's she's going to be just as good as those other gals, and uh, she's here to here to stay almost. Yeah. Uh, was there was there any discussion of of you uh, being able to do a, a cover on on this this issue? No. When 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 they gave it, when they Tom told me about doing the script, it was we don't need a cover. We've already got it. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> okay. You know, because I've I've done plenty of covers that I obviously was not doing the interiors on. So, mm. you know, it's just a way that the ball rolls yes they just had them in the bag all already cover b is uh it's the part three of the of the um, jigsaw image there uh the connecting covers uh by freddie williams ii colors by uh, andrew dalhouse 
this time we've got Scarlet up front, Helix, Law, Flint, I think that's Low Light, and Jinx. So just continuing that that giant uh, that giant scene. This time, yeah, focusing in on Joes, and uh, we don't have any Cobras in on this element. So this cover, I'm I'm holding the comic book, right? I'm not I'm not looking at the the five images together on my screen, uh, and as a as a panoramic poster the image is is great this middle slice of it as a cover by itself i like it i feel like compositionally it's it's the weakest because um there's a lot of there's a lot of negative space in the, in the lower half of the cover that you know there's there's some debris there's a space around helix there's a space around order there's this space around uh scarlet I think if it's the, you know the cropping on Scarlet, the cropping on um, Jinx, this this cover feels like a little bit of a compromise. And I, I think I said in a previous episode, when you draw a wraparound cover or like a gatefold cover, you you know every couple of inches you have this sort of hor- uh, vertical zone where like not much interesting is going to happen because that's where they're that's where the printer is going to cut or fold. Um, and uh, you know if this if this was a cover by itself, if Freddie Williams the second had drawn sort of this scene with these one, two, three, four, five, six, six Joes plus an animal with some of Washington, D.C. Uh, behind them. Um, I don't think this cover by itself would get this composition. I think Flint wouldn't be centered right directly above uh, Scarlet. I think Law would be, I don't know, like bigger and more up. Uh, you know, certainly uh, Jinx wouldn't be um, kicking and then cropped on the right side. Um, so good drawing, but compositionally, I think it's a compromise. Mm-hmm. And then the third uh, cover here is the retailer incentive um, with a returning John Royal, Jagdish Kumar, and colors by James O'Frady. We've got Zarana uh, uh, with a couple of frag vipers up front and in the background, a his tank and um yeah it was interesting i shared with you tim some of the behind the scenes uh images of of this one uh you know which kind of hints at the process that uh that royal took um he had done he'd done some images with this this frag viper sort of playing with the, the competition of of those uh, you know with i think a different either a commission in mind or, or with a with a different cover in mind and, and then not using them and then he did a commission for uh, this Zorana figure, and this this um, cover was is kind of uh, a patchwork quilt of these different um, uh, ideas that that he'd been um, playing with, uh, combining the the previously unused uh, frag vipers, this this sort of pose that was created for uh, a commission, and then him sort of uh, adding in the the hiss behind it to to create a overall composition for for the cover which uh again unfortunately um doesn't relate to the in- interiors which is always a little bit of a shame but um you know a nice a nice image there of Zorana. it's exciting to see the frag vipers um they have difficult to draw helmets and royal pulls it off uh these very much feel like helmets like larger things that are on top of a human head uh you know sometimes in comics or maybe in action figures, we sort of uh, fudge the um, proportions a little bit, like the head is smaller than it would be so that the helmet doesn't appear as this overly large thing uh, on it. And these these really do look like helmets on human, he- human heads here. Interestingly, from the 
the behind the scenes process images you shared, Mark, is that seemingly the this hiss is traced from a photo of the toy, which uh, cracks me up because, you know, for all of the artists drawing G.I. Joe who are struggling, who are contending with these very specific vehicles in perspective at different angles over several pages, right? One solution is just to trace it. And this doesn't always work because if you, if you photograph a toy or if you find a photograph of a toy and you like comp it into your composition, however you're, you're like printing that out or drawing it digitally, it can come across as sort of the wrong perspective because uh, the, the camera lens that you might be using to take a picture of your toy does not accurately replicate the visual perspective of the human eye standing in front of that real tank at you know five feet or ten feet where it's like a little bit taller than you. Um, so sometimes this works and sometimes uh, this doesn't. Um, and this does work here, but I saw the cover before I looked at the behind the scenes images you shared, and I thought that the base of the two, um, uh, the, gun, the, the gun turret, right, the sort of cylinder next to the cobra symbol, I thought, huh, that looks, this is a good looking uh, hiss. That looks just <laughs> a little stubby to me. And then the next day, this morning, I looked at uh, this behind the scenes image, and it's just a photo of the toy, and I thought, Oh, because that's actually uh, the toy. So um, I do not, uh, I do not fault anyone for uh, tracing photos of GI Joe vehicles to make the work go by faster. If if they can pull it off and sort of crunch it into um, a proper perspective, I do like this cover. I I'm okay with Royals covers, mostly not at all reflecting the issues because that's what we always get. But the cumulative effect of covers A and B and R I are disappointing in that none of them are about this issue. And usually we get one of them, even if it's just like the one character from the issue in front of like uh, a burning Cobra building. Shannon, over over to, to you. Do you have any particular thoughts on, on this issue, uh, this cover generally, but but also specifically around the approach to, to how you you deal with the, the thorny issue of, of trying to get the, the vehicles looking right and and how you you know try and accomplish accomplish that and and you know have you know have you used a different various different set of tech techniques and found that one works much better than the other or well over to you i i think it's just a, a personal preference issue i generally try not to trace anything uh not because i have you know kind of like this lofty attitude or anything about it um for me as as tim was pointing out things never quite look right when you do that and I always like I love manga like a lot of what I read is actually just you know is, is not US based stuff but the one gripe that I do have is you'll be looking at something and everybody's kind of drawn in a certain kind of stylized way and then you'll get this ultra realistic car or an ultra realistic whatever you know helicopter and it seems out of place because they, that's basically what they've done is they've traced a photograph and rendered it out exactly like the photograph. And so it feels like someone's plopped in a photograph. You know, it doesn't, there's a disconnect there. And I try to avoid that because that's what I don't like if I, if I when, when I do it, when I trace something in the past that I've, I've had those situations, I've never liked the way it looks. You know, it may be more accurate to the actual thing, but I just, it doesn't feel right. 
So I may take a photograph. I only have a couple of Joe toys, and his tank is one of them, because I ended up drawing it so much. And so I may take a photograph of kind of the angle that I'm looking for, but then I just use that as a reference. You know, it's instead of trying to hold the tank, which my hand's going to get tired over time, I'll, I'll take a photograph. But I just prefer it to look like it was drawn in the same environment, the same way as everything else on the page. And so I'll go through and, and my photograph will end up not being exactly what the drawing is, but I feel like the drawing fits together better just because I've built it on the page as opposed to tracing the photograph. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know the, the timeline of when 3D Joe's was created and, and you know, filled out with all of the wonderful things that it's it's got on it, but I, I imagine it was probably after you had started on, on, the, on the book. I used it a lot, I, so I know it was around for a long time. I mean, through a lot of my, my run, it was there because I, the thing is, is, you know, I don't own all the toys. 3D Joe allowed me to see what the back of the toy looked like. Yeah. In a lot of sense, instances, you, you find references online. It's all the, like, you know, the character sitting on the, on the card. Exactly. Which, you know, it, as a, as a website, what an incredible gift to anyone that has to draw G.I. Yes. Joe vehicles and, and even characters from, from different angles to, to be able to know what's where. I drew Transformers fan fiction in middle school and high school, and I had the comics that had been published of all the character profiles, and it's all front views. Yeah. <laughs> and I would like sometimes pull out a VHS tape and just hope. It's like, oh, well, there's one of the aerial bots, and I can see the back of his head and the back of his shoulders and the back of his torso, but not his waist or legs. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really frustrating. So, yeah, those, those sites are really helpful. Cool. Let's get on to uh, to find out what happened in the issue via the plot breakdown. In the Republic of Panchang, a team of Joes are on the trail of El Calbra. Chuckles, Roblox, and the new Joe, Techie Black Hat, are in the support van, while Lady J and the second new Joe, Multo, are undercover in a taxi en route to a weapons deal sting. Things don't go smoothly as the support team has their tracking drone taken out, gets their comms jammed, they lose sight of the Joes and the taxi before getting involved in a firefight with locals. At the weapons deal, Al Calbra ordered his goons to shoot Jay and Multo, but they go full John Wick in return. Xandar Zarana, Sarawak Sally and her Pirate River crew enter the fray in a thunder machine and steal the nuclear warhead while Al Calbra makes a getaway. The Joes chase them to the Sarawak Star and reach a friendly compromise. Neither side wants to see a rogue nuke in the area so they disarm it and dump it in the Mariana Trench and then have sexy cocktail time as they sail into the sunset. So my overall reaction to this issue is awesome. <laughs> I was going to say, you better watch yourself. I like this. I like chapters one and two of this story so far. And I was, uh, but three is your favorite, right? Uh, yeah. Actually. And, and it will remain your favorite, right? Uh, nothing, nothing that happens in chapters four or five could ever top this. Yes. Um, well <laughs> but, um, you know, I was apprehensive because chapter three looks like it's a, a big geographic and narrative shift. Um, I'm perfectly willing for this, you know, like globe spanning organization and the globe spanning organization they fight 
uh, to go all over the place. Um, and certainly there are different moving parts in this story uh, with, you know, a new Joe and then a mystery villain. I mean, uh, it also helped that, that editor Tom Waltz at the end of last issue said, hey, everyone, next issue, don't worry. But uh, the first panel... <laughs> don't worry. Uh, that's not what he said. Uh, in the first panel of this issue, um, I see a uh, convincing and well-drawn traffic jam. I see this this expositional... In the first panel, this expositional dialogue that I have for decades now come to uh, know and expect and love from a G.I. Joe script, right? Like, I've got the drone hovering directly over the taxi and getting good visuals. Are we getting clear audio, Black Hat? Right, and it's, I think people who like a certain flavor of more modern comics find this kind of dialogue a little old-fashioned or very, very hokey and terrible. And I find it, um, I think old-fashioned sometimes uh, is a negative, and I just find it helpful and smart because... Yes, I don't know that if you've been in this uh, yellow SUV for like an hour with your two like teammates, uh, you know, like I'm not saying Mark and Shannon over and over while I'm talking. Right, Mark? Right, Shannon? It's like, it's just the three of us. We know who's talking. But this is the first page of a story. We've got a geographic and temporal jump. You know, this issue may be someone's first issue of G.I. Joe. And I appreciate that every character gets called out by name. Uh, early in the issue or in any issue of G.I. Joe or sort of the beginning of their scene, um, that the uh, the dialogue is reinforcing the visuals but not uh, doing any of the heavy lifting, right? Like, it's helpful because I see a drone and I thought, oh, is this a drone? Because in whatever the city of Bangkok, like everyone has drones and they're just over traffic or is this part of the story? It's probably part of the story, but I'm not sure. First uh, word balloon, it's part of the story. It's also exciting to uh, meet a new Joe right on the first page. I'm a little sad that all the Joes in this issue are in civilian clothes because I want Joes to be in their costumes because their costumes are awesome. And I very much wish that somehow we could see Black Hat and Molto in their Joe uniforms, but I get the sense that those uh, weren't invented for this story uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe in the future. I, I like the idea that, that you're disappointed that Chuckles isn't in his uniform because he's uh, wearing a blue shirt. Of, of course, I, uh, I stand corrected. Uh, Chuckles is in his uniform. Uh, and it is, I, did, I believe this is the same floral print, print that uh, Jay Brown used um, for Chuckles, you know, uh, uh, 60, 80 issues ago when Shannon last drew the character. Um there's a great sense of vehicular character and prop choreography in this issue, both in this opening scene, but also in Act 2 and in Act 3. Mm. And the mystery of Al Cabra uh, deepens because uh, he's sitting next to a nuclear warhead for <laughs> one scene. Um, so he continues to be a mystery, but also irresponsible. <laughs> uh, I mean, is is he? Because he he pulls out his machine gun uh, and starts shooting. Like, maybe it's the Joes who are irresponsible for shooting in the direction of the warhead. Um, there, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of physical movement within this issue, right? There's there's a chase. The vehicle being chased disappears. The Joes have to be smart and figure out where it went. They have to. 
uh, help, not quite rescue, but back up uh, their friends. Um, some bad guys we haven't seen in a long time show up. Uh, some uh, some non-player characters from seemingly uh, Special Missions 4 mm -hmm. uh, from 1987, right? Am I, am I getting this footnote correct? That's right. 1987. Uh, show up. And I love Special Missions 4. I love it. And I have not reread it in a couple years. So I had to take that footnote on faith because I was not going to run upstairs midway through the <laughs> issue um, and double check. And then the ending is, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the final panel later, but um, uh, this issue has it all except for Joe's in costume, right? New Joe's, uh, obscure Cobra, supporting characters we haven't seen in a while, a new fictional Joe country, right, that we can add to this list of Larry Hama fictional uh, countries and, and cities. Uh, great action, bad guys you love to hate, Joe's helping out Joe's. Lots of great sound effects. Um, I'm liking the sound effects in the script and also Neil Iwatake's uh, treatment of them. Uh, this issue was awesome. And, 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 and sorry, I mean, this, I feel like we covered this in the first half hour, but great art. I like the penciling. I like the inking. Uh, Shannon's storytelling has always been for this book, a chef's kiss of clarity and heightening tension where, where tension needs to be exciting action, but also uh, character moments, right? Like Shannon's acting, facial expressions, right? Like body poses, underrated underrated there's so many pages here and i'm going to talk about two of them where like specifically what the joes are doing with their bodies great that makes it sound dirty <laughs> i saw you Shannon, i saw you came off mute a couple of times was there something something that you wanted to interject no no i was just going to tell them keep going keep going <laughs> praise me keep going i was i was delighted by the art in in this issue and i think when you're doing such a long run on the book as as you did, it's very easy for that to you know fall into the background and and maybe be a little bit under underappreciated. But yeah, it's you know I, I think it's a, a great look for for the GI Joe world, and um, you've always been uh, excellent uh, you know at storytelling and, and the clarity of uh, the story you know, telling the story that needs to to be be told. And um, you know the, this this issue particularly as it's the freshest in my mind um does look um you know completely uh on on point let's should we talk about the the new joe so we've got two new joes being introduced here black cat who is the uh the female kind of uh, hacker as is shorthand and from the first joe that we've got from the philippines called uh, multo which means ghost in tagalog and uh, I believe his introduction was directly a result of uh, Larry Hammer's interview with uh, Glenmark Flash Antonio, who's uh, from the a, a massive, massive GI Joe fan from uh, the Philippines, and uh, and asked Larry why why don't we have a, why don't we have a, a Joe from the Philippines yet? And uh, the equation was, you've asked me, uh, sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. I think it was the equation. So. Um, uh, Shannon, do you want to tell about, tell us about your part in in the creation of these two new characters? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, all all I can tell you is that I was told that there were going to be two new characters, and then given brief descriptions of of who the characters were, basically a little bit of their background, and then specifically what their nationalities were going to be, uh, and that's pretty much all I had to go on. Uh, 
I didn't know so much if they were actually members of Joe or if they were kind of like people that had been recruited from outside to help on this mm-hmm. mission, that kind of thing. I, w- I really wasn't aware of where they were going to fall, if they're going to end up being permanent members or not. I was going to say that that's that's an interesting point, and I don't. It might not even be spelled out in complete black and white in this uh, in this issue. But at the time of recording, I think it is issue a hundred and no, sorry, two hundred and eighty-seven has uh, had a little bit of information revealed from it, um, which is the second of the spotlight arc, where where there's the the, the this arc is um, going to focus in on particular characters, and this issue is going to focus in on. Uh, the new Joes, uh, as they're introduced to the sort of the pit for the first time, so um, it's going to uh, feature Sherlock, um, Black Hat, uh, and Multo. So um, it sounds like um, they're you know going to be proper Joes and and around to stay. Excellent. Yeah. I, you know, I, I figure half of the time it's how well do they get received um, by the fans. Mm, yeah. But when I was designing them, I wasn't designing Joe costumes per se. Uh, especially because they were just supposed to be in cities anyway. So I really just kind of designed characters. And and Larry gave certain descriptions of what they were supposed to be wearing anyway, uh, specifically with her, because he wanted it to be obvious that she was kind of like this Trek fan, like she was, you know, into sci-fi stuff. So she's wearing like a little Vulcan pendant. I don't know if it, it it's visual, really, like, you know, obvious in any of the panels, but it's that whole... Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was, you know, the, when they've achieved pure essence or whatever of logic, they, they get the little amulet in Star Trek. So it was a copy of that. You know, it was like a cosplay kind of thing mm-hmm. or, you know, a fan thing. So it was little details like that that I was trying to throw in just to help define who they were as characters. I will say that Malto, I designed this whole, and I think they're online now. Yeah. Uh, I designed this kind of more military-looking outfit for him where it was kind of like oh my old jacket from when i was in the service or you know an old pair of pants mm-hmm. from the service and then he ends up wearing cargo shorts and a you know panama shirt or whatever it was so it was kind of a waste of time but <laughs> well thailand's it, as hot as hell yes uh, in the summertime so uh, and so so yeah so putting him in shorts yeah you, so you just it's more of like settling in in your head what you're going how you're going to approach the character because I think also the way someone dresses kind of defines who they are as a person. Mm-hmm. You know, how flamboyant are they? Or, you know, if this guy's ex-secret service or whatever, he's not going to dress in a way that's going to attract attention. You know, it's going to be muted colors. He's not going to be wearing pink and fuchsia or whatever. He's, he's going to try and blend in with the background. And if she's a girl that's more interested in tech than she is in being on Instagram... <laughs> as far as like an influencer, then she's going to dress a certain way. So that was the approach. And then the other thing was, is I always assign actors in my head as to what these characters are going to look like, just so I can have kind of a thing to aim for, so that they do have a uniqueness, like a specific personality or, or look to them. And so then that's what, you know, part of it is picking out who I'm going to base these people on, just so that they have a ring of truth to them. Okay, and are you able to let us in on that little secret? Who did you who did you have in mind for these two? Well, the the Indian girl, the first person that came to mind for me was the young lady that was on the recent seasons of Doctor Who. What was her name? Like Man, Mandip Gill. I've not been following uh, the recent Doctor Who, so I'm afraid yeah. I can't. But anyway, so brain box. yeah, so that I based it on her, mm-hmm. and then the the Malto is actually based on an actual Filipino actor who was in a show about special agents or, you know, special forces kind of characters. 
and his name was Rocco Nasino or something like that. And again, it's it's not I'm trying to I'm not trying to necessarily get a likeness in every panel because I'm not trying to use the actor to that extent, but it is kind of a reference point. To me, it's almost like using a his tank toy as a reference. I'm still going to extend the barrels of the guns and make it a little more, you know, realistic. Mm. But it's a starting point just so that there's a consistency. And I'm, you're making me think now about who who else you might have had in in, in mind for some of the the other characters over over the years. Uh, like Chuckles, you draw him in with a a certain a certain look. Maybe is it Owen Wilson? Or? Yep. <laughs> yeah, ding ding ding. Because it's funny because I was telling Andrew about it, and he goes, "Well, who's it based on?" And I told him, "I go, you know, he's kind of like Owen Wilson. He's got a name that implies he's going to be funny, but he's not." And so then, other characters are based. You know, he was asking me who other characters are based on, and I change it up occasionally. Mm-hmm. Like someone called me out one time and said, "You know, you're." Hawk is different now, and I go, well, yeah, I, I changed it from one actor to another actor, <laughs> so that's that's why it doesn't look the same now. I recast, you know. They wanted too much money. I'm trying to think of who I based him on originally, but at, at some point it ends up being John Wayne. All right, John uh, Wayne, wow. But I, that's just kind of how I approach it. Like some characters, I know it's going to be this one. Like Stalker is Carl Weathers from the Rocky film, you know, okay. Predator. It's al- it's always been him. Um, that's what it was. At one point, uh, Hawk was Schwarzenegger. Oh, because wow. it was kind of that... No, 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 not Hawk. Um, Duke. Because mm. of the hair. I was like, oh, it's like Schwarzenegger's hair from Predator or whatever. So it's like, oh, I'm just going to draw Schwarzenegger. And it's not necessarily always the build. It's more the, the facial features or something. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of play with it. And then, yeah, talking about the, the new Joes specifically, uh, and I, I, I called it out as being... Uh, that Multo was going full on John Wick in terms of that that scene where Al Calbra decides that uh, actually he would rather not sell his nu- his nuclear device. He would just keep it and also keep the money and uh, and do away with the with the Joes. That's a, a cool uh, cool action um, sequence. Did uh, yeah was that was that one fun to, fun to draw? They're always hard to draw. I, I, action sequences are not my forte. It's, it's not my specialty. It's not the thing that I'm, I excel at. So it's always a, a challenge for me. And so I end up spending most of my time trying to make sure that if this person's here and that person's there and they move here, I spend way more time doing that than I think some people do uh, because they're, they're not that worried about it. But, yeah, it, it drives me nuts because sometimes Larry will write something and I'm like, well, okay, if the guy comes in on that side, how does the car work out? Because I had that problem with the van doors when the guys show up to, to save everybody and they just kind of drive through the building and they don't really okay. stop. The way cars are flipped in the Philippines, if I had the guys on the wrong side of the vehicle, they wouldn't have been able to get in the side door, which is what Larry had written into the script. Mm. And so I was like, okay, well, the back door will open, like the hatchback kind of thing on the truck. And so that's, how, that's why they end up jumping into the back of the truck as opposed to in from the side door. Is really it was just it was a staging issue. I was like, that's the only way it'll work. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, that's the stuff I spend half my time pulling my hair out over, and I don't have a lot left. <laughs> yeah, speaking about the full, full on John John Wick, it was it is it is a, a relatively uh, violent issue for GI Joe, and uh, particularly that 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 scene sort of uh, that that sticks out is that uh, that cool moment where. Uh, roadblock is shooting uh, you know he's stopped and and uh, 
they're they're going gonna to do away with the with the Joe's in the in the van. He said they said, look here, that's in a van full of Farangs, crud. Just shoot them, and then uh, Roadblock lets loose with the Marduce through the the side of the the vehicle, which is a particularly cool uh, cool touch. Uh, but yeah, brutal. I'll jump in here. Jay Brown does uh, one or two things. Does two things with colors in this issue that I like, and one or two things that I don't. Um, in this panel you just referred to, Mark, uh, the camera's low. We're looking past the yellow van, and these two bad guys are falling over, being shot up. And there's a sound effect as the bullets come out of the van, rat-a-tat-tat-tat. And they're knocked out in red. And there's still some difference, you know, their sleeves or their shirt, their skin, their pants. It's not a uniform red, but it's it's still a knockout. And then the background is... Uh, just a very simple sort of circular gradient from an orange yellow to that to a similar red, uh, and that both accentuates the violence because the color treatment is different for this one panel, this one moment. It also minimizes the violence because there's less detail if there's there's less contrast in the blood coming out of these guys as they get shot up if just everything about them is red. Um, and Brown does this again a couple pages later when the thunder machine crashes into the i guess it's a, a warehouse or a garage and shoots up more of the bad guys so there's a panel where one two three four five six seven seven of these bad guys are all getting shot up and they're all knocked out similarly in, the, in this sort of dirty red uh, brown something else that uh jay brown does with color that i find interesting and it's it's very different but it's subtle in the second half of the issue, there are a handful of panels where he doesn't soften hard edges where one color meets another color. This is on Chuckles' face. This is on Xandar's face in one panel. Um, and uh, the page, which is uh, the second to last page of the story, right? There's this standoff where the Joes are on one side and uh, Xandar's Arana and his NPCs are on the other side. There are these two panels of Chuckles holding his gun. Uh, There's no way we let you and Sarawak Sally sail off with an operational nuke. And then at the bottom, okay, so where do we go from here? Um, these two panels in particular, when I, when I turned to this page, I thought to myself, did Jay Brown not color this page? Like, did he like run out of time and someone else colored this page? Or did someone else finish this page and he started it? Or did he run out of time and not quite finish it to a style that fits his sort of normal monthly style because he doesn't use a lot of hard edges and uh chuckles here um there are only two colors on his face and his arms there's just the complexion and the shade color and that's not how jay brown colors he normally has like a gradient and then adds like a lot of red brown or some like purple and I really like these two panels and where I think he uh, at times overdoes it on this on this book. Uh, I wish more of the book looked like these uh, two panels. Um, and then the other thing that um, in his coloring doesn't doesn't work for me. Um, the page that has the footnote for uh, Sarah Wax Sally going back to Special Missions 4, right? We see the Thunder Machine in a big panel in the middle of the page and... Uh, we see uh, Xandar for the first time uh, and three of these other characters on the Thunder Machine. And uh, Shannon has drawn some lines in perspective to show 
what the road is doing with this the dotted white line and what the sort of speed lines around the thunder machine are doing and the colors which are sort of uh i think for the road but also maybe sort of just for like whooshing speed lines uh the the sort of diagonal lines of gray and dark gray and light gray uh, in the background of this panel do not at all match the perspective and so on the top left of this panel it sort of looks like shafts of light, but I think it's supposed to be the, the road below and behind them. But uh, going back to those uh, those two knockouts, all that red, you know, I, I, li I like a simpler, simpler color treatment in almost all of my comic, right? If I'm reading a new X-Men comic, right, and Marvel, Marvel's paying top dollar for some really talented, like, painters who use Photoshop, I'm all in on very aggressive, shiny, pretty aggressive coloring. Uh, but... Most other books, you know, I'd be happy if it was just like a 1985 palette of 64 colors. And when Jay Brown knocks out a panel in all red because a bunch of guys are getting shot up, I see a slight connection, a small connection to that older style of coloring, and I like it. Well, it was funny because, you know, I hadn't really kind of paid attention, but when Tim was talking about the, you know, the introduction scene with the, the Thunder Machine and everybody, Jim indicated like marking us on the road and i had no intention of that it's funny because it was just i really just threw in a bunch of speed lines figuring it was just gonna kind of like i was expecting her to be saying stuff because i never get dialogue from larry usually mm. uh so i figured they were going to be screaming stuff at the joes as they were driving by you know like <laughs> suck on it or whatever and so I was just kind of leaving room for word balloons, and I was like, well, instead of rendering out this whole background was going to be covered in word balloons, I'm just going to indicate speed lines. And somewhere along the line, James decided it was the road in the background. So yeah, there's like one random white stripe to indicate the center of the road that's not actually there. So that that's on me. <laughs> that's my fault. But yeah, it was, it was basically just a, a floating vehicle in my original drawing. So, sorry. <laughs> So yeah, we have we have the in, the reintroduction of Sarawak Sally, last seen in uh, Special Missions Four in nineteen eighty seven. That's the the one with the cool co uh, cover of uh, Life uh, Lifeline hanging upside down in in parachute uh, rigging, uh, with a yeah slightly more updated look to her back then. You know, sort of a bit more of a punky uh, nineteen eighty seven look. Uh, so so uh, you've uh, obviously contemporized it a little bit, um, Shannon. <laughs> Yeah, that was, yeah, we had to do that. Can't really draw hooch. <laughs> so yeah, so we tried. We and uh, Larry also pointed out in the script that he wanted her to have more of like, um, as if she had moved on. She wasn't just kind of mm -hmm. this, this street urchin kind of background or whatever that she had gone semi-legitimate, and so she had a business on the side, and it was a successful business. And I actually ended up modeling her on an actual uh, entrepreneur in Bangkok, like a woman who's been very wow. successful. Uh, and so I modeled her clothes on that that lady and slightly the facial features as well, just to make her look a little more specific to that area. But yeah, she's supposed to look like she's gone a little bit more legit, even though she's riding around on the thunder machine. <laughs> that aside, yeah. But yeah, apart from the uh, apart from the thunder, that, that giant car with uh, the Gatling guns on the front. Apart from that, straight up legit. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know uh, what what prompted Larry to necessarily bring back uh, Sarawak um, 
Sally, what you know, if there was something that that went on that that reminded him of this uh, this this character that hasn't been seen since 1987, you know, maybe it's just the 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 scene that was being that you know the part of the world that that this is set and he was sort of racking his brain to try and remember, you know, which character in the Joe world might fit in, but uh, there was an interesting parallel between that that story and and this this one. So so that that story. From Special Missions Four was all about the Joes and October Guard fighting over these black boxes, and they they kind of reach an impasse, and um, Sally decides to um, you know let's get rid of all of that conflict and just dump them in the river, and then you've got nothing left to fight over. And uh, yeah, there's a parallel then to to what happens here, where everyone's fighting over the uh, nuclear warhead. You know what can we do? Disarm it and dump it in the ocean. So uh, yeah, in, interesting. Uh, Interesting parallel there to, to her previous uh, appearance and, you know, her tried and tested method of dealing with a, with a problem, um, dump it in the ocean or a, a large body of water. I think. <laughs> Let's talk about sound effects. Okay. There are more sound effects in this issue. This is not a scientific survey. There are more sound effects in this issue than in many issues for a while. And I love sound effects in comics because it's one of the tools in your toolkit. And in the late 80s, after books like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, and maybe even indirectly to a lesser extent, Mouse, um, I think a lot of editors or writers in comics decided that sound effects looked juvenile and stopped using them in stories. And... Uh, certainly in like, you know, like the 1989 Batman movie adaptation drawn by Jerry Ordway, right? Like it's meant to be like a fancier kind of comic and it's not a regular Batman comic. It's like capturing the magic of that movie and, you know, with actor likenesses and very fancy color. It's like early, early Steve Olaf computer coloring. That comic has no sound effects, right? Um, and that's fine. But for like, 15 years, Marvel and DC books basically didn't have sound effects, uh, which is really unfortunate because, um, for example, this this page, two pages I'm looking at, right, where the, the Thunder Machine does show up. We've got this footnote to Special Missions 4. Alcabra kicks his table over, and then a bunch of his guys as backup run into the garage, right? Vroom, uh, ratatat, blam, brap, brap, rap, blam, blam, right? You might look at these and think, well, these are silly, you know, like 1966 Batman TV, like bam, biff, poff. Um, but these are all descriptive, right? So like the sound of one kind of automobile going faster than another, that's going to have a different onomatopoeia. And um, what Neil Yuotake does really nicely here with the lettering in this whole issue is subtly he crops a lot of these sound effects right at the panel border so on these two pages i'm referring to the room right at the bottom of the o's and the m as this yellow van's chasing the thunder machine lines up with the bottom of the gets cropped by the bottom of the the panel right um similarly the the gun sound effects on the next page right so you can make a small design choice so that these do feel like they belong in the scene rather than as like computer lettering they just float on top of it but also, again, like a pistol makes a different sound effect than one kind of machine gun or another kind of machine gun. And I think 
uh, I think Hama is paying attention to these different things that make sound effects and using these sound effects to accentuate that um, for, for clarity for the reader, right? Like, oh, I see different guns. Oh, I quote here different guns. And also to add some, some pep and flavor to the story, you know, like I've got a cupcake with frosting. Well, it also has sprinkles on it, right? The sprinkles don't really change the flavor of the cupcake, but they change your experience of the cupcake because you've got this, this, this enhancement, this decoration, and it changes the texture of the cupcake. Yeah, I mean, the just talking about specifically the the guns. What's interesting is you've got the the shot some shotguns and pistols. They go blam. You've got then uh, machine guns that go brap. You've got the thunder machine which goes brrrr, and you've got a particularly large uh, machine gun that Al Calvary uses that goes like that. Um, so and and that's used pretty consistently throughout the. The whole issue, um, uh, yeah, I completely blind to it until you uh, um, until you pointed and, it out. But um, and then on the on the two pages after the ones I've just referred to, right? What is the sound of a thunder machine knocking into a four door sedan? Patang! What is the sound <laughs> effect of a thunder machine hitting a metal barrel and knocking a nuclear warhead onto its front? Clonk! What is the sound effect of the thunder machine breaking through a corrugated metal garage wall or door? Kerrang! Right? That's awesome. It's not kiddie or juvenile or dumb or silly. And, and also, Neil Yutake is um, making great letter forms um, with like warping and stretching uh, these letters, angling the letters in little bits of um, perspective. Um, the lettering in this issue is great. And uh, you know, in 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 our disavowed series, uh, I was really hard on the early Devil's Due issues of GI Joe from 2001, where the word balloons were like not well um, populated and shaped, and I I I can't remember it. I don't think there are any sound effects in those comics, right? Which just sort of follows up with this, on this idea of like, well, for 15 years, Marvel and DC, and I think a lot of Image just dropped sound effects, but the sound effects add a lot to this issue, and I love them. <laughs> Very good. There, there were certainly were a few uh, sound effects in Devil's Due, but maybe less sparingly. Do you remember the, the lightning and uh, a sploosh as a, someone falls overboard and that kind of thing? But uh... okay, thank thank you for the fact. <laughs> thank you for the fact check. Fact checking, Joe reporting in. Uh, I wanna I wanna point out uh, I wanna point out two things about the art. Uh -oh. Okay, so I'm reading the issue last night, and all of a sudden at the end the. The Joes and Sarawak Sally and these two Dreadnoughts are suddenly dealing with this nuclear warhead, and they're gonna um, they're gonna dump it in the ocean. And I thought, oh, we, like where did this like giant um, container ship come from? And in looking back at the issue, right? So so I'm flipping back a page or two. The scene where the thunder machine stops because they have run into the the local junta, like the local military, right? There's there's a roadblock set up, and in the background mm. are uh, several uh, shipping containers and this maroon latticework, uh, which is this like the the whole loading gantry at at a port city. Um, and it's in the first panel 
of this page, right, where the Thunder Machine's driving um, into an opening in a chain link fence. And on the left side, it, there's a sign that says Pier 17 or 7. And on the right, you see this giant, you know, metal shipping container loading stuff. You see it in the fourth panel. The story is keeping track of these things, and the art is keeping track of these things. Um, and one of the things that I like about Shannon's storytelling, and I think some of this comes from the, from the plot, and some of this comes from uh, Shannon being conscientious about continuity uh, and also careful with acting, um, is um, many times in Shannon's art, characters are doing two things at once, which I think is a really good use of comics, right? Because comics are not film or animation, right? One panel of comics can have a lot of information, right? And and if, if someone is saying something in a word balloon, there's this compression of time where we see a frozen moment like a photograph. So it feels like it can only be a fraction of a second. And yet what someone is saying is like 10 seconds or 20 seconds of dialogue, but maybe they're also like kicking and also like, you know, picking up something with their hand. So um, page uh, one, two, three, four, five. Uh, so the, the, Joes, the, the three Joes in the van, the yellow van are driving. Chuckles, we're looking into the uh, into the front of the car from the van from the middle, right? And Chuckles is turning back to us and saying, "Let's get a move on, people." We and Roadblock has gone from the passenger seat, and he's now rushing into the back to get his giant rifle, which is in this panel. And we see Black Hat's hand near her keyboard or her control panel, right? Because um, she's just said, I've got a beat on the transponder. It's on an ultra, ultra frequency. Roadblock, I need you back here to help me trace it, right? So there's this urgency um, and there's this very small bit of choreography where Roadblock actually goes from the front of the car to the back of the car, right? And if you if you all want a, a contrast, please go to my blog um, back from a couple months ago and read my review of Snake Eyes Dead Game issue number one, <laughs> where the writer artist of that story um, doesn't keep great track of three or four Joes in a hallway with a doorway where like I can't sort of follow who's who and where's where. So um, one, two, three, four, five, six pages later, uh, it's the page where Alcabra is kicking the table over, right? So he's shooting up the taxi uh, and there's a big rat a tat a on this first panel. So uh, on this page, he's kicking over the table so he has both grabbed his giant machine gun and also he's kicking over the table, right? So two things at once. His cell phone, his burner phone, is falling because it was on top of the table. And if you don't believe me, flip back a couple pages. When when we first are introduced to him in this comic, right, and uh, Malto is opening up the case of cash, right, what's on the table in front of El Calbra? His burner phone and his machine gun uh, and also a grenade... So the panel where he's kicking the table over and the phone is, is falling and he's using his machine gun, right? So then look in the very top right of this page, the very top right of this first panel. Molto is holding two machine guns, right? He's picked up one and he's picked up a second, right? Lady J is running around the, uh, in Western cars, what we'd call the passenger side of the car. Uh, and then in the second panel, she now has one of those two machine guns, Right? So off panel, Molto like, tosses her one of these machine guns. Then mm. in panel three, Alcabra's doing two things at once, three things at once. He's taking cover behind uh, this uh, table. He's firing his machine. He's also holding 
the burner and he's calling, where's my backup crew? I need you in the warehouse, right? The next panel, Molto calls out this steel-plated table, right? Which in uh, the next page, by the way, gives us some wonderful sound effects. Punk, 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 punk. The sounds of bullets hitting a bulletproof table. But in the final panel of this page uh, uh, where he's kicking the table over, right? His backup runs into this garage, right? And one of them who's saying, we got your message, is both firing a pistol and also holding his own burner phone up in the air. And this is a thing that happens in G.I. Joe comics, which I've talked about before that I like, which doesn't really happen in other comics. Um, This is a thing that I think Hama writes into his stories, like keeping track of equipment and where people are, and then the artist has to contend with making it work. Um, But, you know, again, like Punisher comics aren't that different from G.I. Joe comics. It's street level, Right, like you know, Punisher doesn't have like jetpacks. He doesn't fly. He doesn't have eye beams, um, and he has weapons and a weapons van. Um, but you know, like in a lot of Punisher comics, I don't see this kind of sort of prop and object and spatial um, consideration. And I certainly don't see it in X Men comics where they're like, "How do we get to Wakanda?" It's like, "Well, we'll take the Blackbird or we'll teleport." There aren't other comics like this, like G.I. Joe, Real American Hero. And I don't mean like, well, it's this nostalgic thing. Oh, it's closing in on 300 issues or it's got a big cast. It's based on a toy. It's from the 80s. I don't mean that. Um, Other comics don't have uh, action choreography and character work like this. And, And even if something about the characters or the art or the color or the, the plot, right, is like not sort of what you love about G.I. Joe, it's not, it doesn't compare to your like favorite version or era of G.I. Joe. Part of why I keep reading this comic is that as a reader, I get stuff from this series that I don't get in other comics. Speaking to your point about sort of keeping track of kick and all that kind of stuff, what I, I noticed was that there's some very specific weaponry that's being being used in the, you know, you can see it in the, in the, sound sound effects that we saw as well that the different sounds of the different weaponry like the the guns that are being held in the air by the the river pirates and this very specific gun that that lady j is handed by multo and and with the um, magazine the circular magazine on the on the top of the gun and uh, and i imagine there's a a story telling logic there that that's been thought out by by larry and i i bet you it's you know the the make of all, all of these very specific guns it would have been in the in the script there for for shannon to to uh, make sure that he, he's referencing the right the right one and i'm guessing the thought process is that some of this weaponry is is maybe leftover stock from various wars conflicts in the territories what what would be accessible by by river pirates or by you know street gangs in in the in the region would would make sense from from that perspective it's not going to be the the latest military you know hardware that 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 would otherwise be used by the for example by the by the joes or cobra and that that's a lot of what larry does Uh, like i was saying earlier i may i may have issues with some some of the stuff of dealing with larry but he was always very accurate as far as picking out weapons that he felt, as you were saying, these, I think most of these are actually like Soviet era type of mm. weapons that were you know, just kind of left scattered about. And he's very particular about that. I, and he's also got this attitude, and Chuck Dixon was this way as well. Uh, when I was doing the reboot of Joe with Chuck, he was very adamant about, okay, 
this is Cobra. They've got money. They're going to buy these type of weapons. They're not going to run around with like crappy AK-47s or whatever. That's his mentality. Is is it's another problem. Like we were going, we were talking about earlier with the clothes. It fits who these characters are. It it establishes instantly what level they at, they're at financially or where they're coming from or who they are as people. And and that's kind of the whole pirate thing. They're going to just have secondhand stuff. You know, stuff that they've picked up or stolen or found or whatever in their journeys. They're not going to, like, go down to the, you know, Virginia gun shop and buy whatever top-of-the-line FN-90 submachine gun that they want to buy. You know, they're going to, it's kind of what's available. And uh, Larry's always been very specific with that kind of stuff. When Natho took over the book, he asked me, what do I need to be aware of working on this? I was like, if Larry says a specific gun, you better damn well use that specific gun because you're going to get hell for it. And, you know, because he said, I'm getting all these revisions. And I said, is it on military hardware? He's like, well, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's Larry's sticking point. If he puts in a specific weapon, that's what he wants. Um, okay, uh, next thing on, on my list that I, I noticed, we've got the the return of uh, Zorana, but specifically Xandar, the, the Dreadnought twins team. I haven't really seen too much of, of Xandar, really, since since his first appearance, as far as I, I can I can recall in the, the Hammer um, use of, of him. He sort of appeared in the background here and there, but for the most part relegated uh, to the side and... Yeah, in the background, I know that there are some big fans uh, of the of the character who have been lobbying for his return. So uh, I think this issue is probably in part sort of trying to satiate that desire to to have him uh, appear. I'm trying to remember if he uh, the the Dreadnoughts have that scene where they're gathering in in the sort of beginning of Snake Hunt. I'm trying to remember if he's yeah yeah yeah. I think he I think he did crop up in in Snake Hunts, but but not in any you know. When I read this issue way. last night, um, I thought, oh, well, now we know that Alcabra's not Xandar. <laughs> That's right. I had the same thought. That should cuts down, uh, cuts and down the shit I didn't list. really think it was going to be him, but you, know, you can't help but go through a list of individual mm-hmm. Cobra characters who we haven't seen in a while or who might have a, 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 new, a new prominence if you if you decide that they should have a new prominence and there's some funny uh, synchronicity here because uh in our other episodes we're we're rereading the devil's do press gi joe series from 2001 and the issues we just covered uh xandar is suddenly important so this this issue echoed with that even though that was all coincidental yeah even though it was almost uh, an issue 20 years ago it just uh, happens to to synchronize yes, I, I might nicely. as well have just said oh i watched the scene in the animated movie where xandar has one line how exciting for xandar to have such a moment for me uh it doesn't have anything to do with anything <laughs> well i mean it's the podcast that is released before this one so uh listeners will get will get the point oh yeah and in terms of the mystery of al Calbra, who who it might be if it if it isn't a brand new original character and it might be someone existing already i don't think i'm any closer to the to what that might be it's you know still masked it's still much the same you know outfit that he was in his first appearance he likes big guns he's pretty merciless he operates independently and builds up his own teams uh, top of the short list probably still firefly if if that were were the case i don't know if if your thinking has evolved, Tim? Um, my, no, my two questions were, 
the page where he first shows up in this issue, uh, there's where we first see the nuke. Right? It's all the way on the right side, and then at the bottom, it's it's a dividing compositional element between Molto and uh, and him. Yeah. That third panel where he's he's pointing his finger, and he's saying, "All I care about is whether you have the money." I sort of wondered, is that a real nose, or is uh, and and, <laughs> and uh, Shannon? I'm so sorry. I, I don't mean this to be. Uh, a criticism of your inking uh, or like me calling out a guy who's got like a prominent nose if he's actually got a prominent nose but it occurred to me that if this character is going to such lengths to mask his identity that he's wrapping up so much of his face and his glasses cover so much of his 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 face skin is is that is that actually a bit of his nose that we're seeing or is that sort of part of the uh, glasses and so one I sort of wondered oh, is that really his nose? Or is he wearing like more of a disguise? Two, I thought, oh, I know we're not going to get an answer, but during the podcast, I wanted to ask Shannon. Shannon, do you know who Alcabra is? No. And as far as the nose thing, uh, the references that I was sent for the character, because I hadn't drawn the character before, it, to me, it kind of looked like the same setup as the Invisible Man used to wear. And I don't know if you remember like the old Claude Rain films, but he had these goggles and it had a nose piece on it like mm. attached to it and so i just drew it mm. that way so in my version it's supposed to be like this three-piece goggle unit kind of thing that he's wearing mm. i don't know if the original design it was supposed to be his nose or not but that's how i drew it i mean that was the approach that i took is that it was actually this kind of like housing that goes over your nose if you're wearing these like welding goggle type things Okay, and and if you don't have any insight, you know, into into the rest of the the arc and stuff, that like that get, probably gives us a bit of room for you to to be able to speculate. Did you have any thoughts on on the uh, mis mysterious identity of this Al Calbra? I originally uh, thought it was um, I can't can't remember his name, but was it Destro's arms dealing cousin or brother? Darklon. Yes. Ooh. But that was my first. Interesting. Thing. That's that's in, that's a good bit of speculation because um, yeah we've not we've not seen him for a for a long time and um, you know this this guy here has got his hands on a on a warhead and his dealing arms out there in, uh, in Asia connections to Cobra it's not outside the realms of possibility if is uh, it? if the story shifts in chapters four and five to Darklonia then I think we'll have a I think we'll have a hint <laughs> but maybe that's just a red herring. If, if it even happens, who knows? I gotta wait three weeks. Um, I I really like the ending of this issue. I I like the audacity of the Joes in this yellow van, which is, I don't know, maybe it's a rental car, or maybe they like hooked up with some local uh, American security forces. Like, do you have an armored van we can borrow for this mission undercover? Or it's probably just a rental, right? But they they do joke that okay, it's uh, a rental there. I'm just flicking back to to try and find the bit of dialogue because it is it is a funny moment, and it was actually my my quote of the week. 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 Um. So so Roadblock has just shot through the uh, the side of the the van. Uh, Chuckles turns to him, thumbs up. Nice move, Roadblock. And Roblox says, it's a good thing your name was on the van rental agreement. Thank you. Thank you for the fact check. Um, I like the audacity 
of the Joes ramming the Thunder Machine, right? Which just ha- just has armor plating on the side with their yellow rental van. Uh, and then we get uh, an evocative sound effect for it, right? Pathoom. But you can also see it's a little bit covered up by that word balloon, and I, I think that's okay. The van is taking great damage for slamming into the Thunder Machine. Uh, and then also, one, two, three, three great poses from uh, the non-Dreadnoughts getting tossed or jumping from the Thunder Machine. But this bit of, of sort of physical choreography as the, the yellow van goes up this gangplank. So it's now, it's now on the, the container ship chasing the Thunder Machine. It slams into it, and then the gangplank um, falls into the, the bay or the, the ocean, I guess it's a bay, harbor. And maybe sort of in the heightened reality, the, the, the ship is also like cast off. It is now two feet, 10 feet, 20 feet further uh, into, the, into the water. And then this, this standoff, right, where there are four, four Joes on one side with their, um, with their arms, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Dreadnoughts and friends with their arms on the left side. And uh, Black Hat doesn't have a gun and is not aiming a gun back at the bad guys. Uh, on this uh, second to last page top panel, is just inspecting the damage of the uh, Thunder Machine, right? And then this this bit, which I think when I read it, I was surprised by how quickly it happens. It happens just in, in, in like in sort of the bottom half of one page and then in the top half of the next page, where it's like, oh, there was a nuke. It's disarmed. What are we going to do? We're going to work to good guys and bad guys. We're going to put aside our differences and work together. We're going to dump it in the ocean. But like, no, it actually works out because, you know, like back on the first page, the Joes with their drone, right? Black Hat, we should be able to grab solid documentation when Alcabra contacts them about their Sting weapons deal, right? I just hope Alcabra buys their cover story. So I love this ending because... It turns out that the stakes were really high in the issue. I was just so sort of pleasantly distracted by like all the other moving parts of the story, like characters we haven't seen, good chase scene. And then this final panel, right, which is so funny where, you know, the, the Joes don't want a nuke out there and neither do the Dreadnoughts and neither does this third party. And so they, they have a tech person on them, right? Black Hat disarms it. Then they can dump it because it's inert. And then this final pan- <laughs> this final panel, they're all having cocktails on this container ship in, uh, you know, what's what's the city? Uh, Seathang, right? It's a Bangkok harbor. And Zorana is, <laughs> Zorana is putting, the last thing you see in the issue, Zorana is putting the umbrella from her mixed drink in Roblox's ear as if they're about to clink, dra- uh, clink glasses. And... You know, I've talked about this in previous episodes. I love it when there's a good reason for the good guys and the bad guys to have to work together. And, you know, the Dreadnoughts have always had sort of shifting loyalties. And certainly some Joes in the middle of a mission or at the end of a mission are might be willing, you know, when not back at the pit and talking to Duke and Hawk, to, you know, share, share a beverage with the bad guys who aren't always bad because they've just done this incredible thing for world peace. Um, this ending is really funny, but it also, and I, I mean this as a compliment, it feels really 80s. It reminds me of 
like movies or ends of episodes where you know someone cracks a joke and everyone chuckles not not the guy i mean everyone everyone laughs oh yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah and then like even you know like here's 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 a homaism even in the second to last panel uh, a character refers to uh, Yokosuka Naval Base in Japan, right? Which is like not something that I'm aware of, not something that I rushed to Google after reading this issue, but just a little bit. It's like all these very specific weapons in the issue that it's like that's what these characters might be using, and you'd better draw this specific weapon, right? It's like, well, where would this where would this this group of people go? Like, where would this character want to get dropped off? Like, this isn't like I'll just invent another country or. I'll like invents like, oh, well, I know some friends who are in another ship. They're passing by. I'll just hop on their boat. It's like, no, a, a, a real world place, uh, this naval base, it gets mentioned and, and these characters are going to get dropped off. So I love the idea that there's a little bit more to this story uh, that that continues after the final panel that does not get picked up in the next issue. Right. We just know that it's like, well, they enjoyed their drinks and then they watch the sunset and then they go their separate ways. <laughs> That's awesome. Or, yeah. or issue issue, uh, issue two two eight four opens with a panel of Roadblock and uh, Zorana smoking a cigarette. Um, Shannon, talk us through um, through this last this last um, panel. Uh, what? The, well, I mean, that's what I, was, that was what was in written, the what so. was in the script what was in the script and and what uh, and and how close was what you drew to. To that so how much of this is uh larry hammer and how much of this is you it's it's pretty much everything that larry put into it i think i can't remember if he had serrano putting the umbrella behind his ear or not but it just it, whether it was in there or not it, it seemed like it was a natural thing for her to kind of be toying with them i always get the especially because remember that in the cartoon she had like the whole relationship with a joe in one episode or whatever mm-hmm. so it just seemed like it, it, you know as tim was saying that there's this amoebic kind of morality that they have you know sometimes they'll do something good sometimes it's bad whatever it is that benefits them so it just seems natural for her character i did want to point out you know how tim was talking about with the uh, gangplank kind of thing kind of falling off a ship Mm -hmm. i guess it doesn't come out in the dialogue or i guess it's my fault for not indicating it better but yeah in the script larry is saying the ship pulls away from you know the dock because they're trying to evade you know the other cops showing up because they're they're chasing the Joe van at one point. Like you can, they're supposed to be behind them or something. Yeah. Um, but they were supposedly pulling away from the dock so that they could make their escape and the Joes, you know, crash onto the ship and are coming along for the ride, whether they want them there or not. So, yeah, that that's why there's that bigger, there's supposed to be that bigger space and that's why the game yeah. point falls off. But Larry... To be, to be fair, it does say, it does say just in the preceding page, it says, my crew has the diesels up and running. We can cast off immediately, so... Uh, yeah, it does, it does make sense that they're kind of able to get going quickly. But it was one of those things, you know how we were talking about Larry so specific, that was one of the few times Larry didn't indicate how that whole setup was going to work. And I literally had no idea how logistically that gangplank <laughs> thing would work. I mean, I I tried to do some research. It's not exactly something that you can find with a, you know, Google, uh, okay, gangplank to a cargo ship from the 40s, uh, and you can drive a van on it. That it doesn't come up. Nothing like that comes up. So, hopefully, it reads believable. But I had no idea oh, yeah. what I was doing. Cool. Um, are we ready to move on to I Spy and just look at uh, point out some little nuggets that that um, might we might have spotted? Yeah. Go for it. I, I spy, spy with, with my, my little eye. eye. 
So I spy trigger discipline. So just in that that final standoff sequence, we've got um, we've got Chuckles, Zorana, and Sarawak Sally all with their pistols pointed at one another. But interesting to note that they are maintaining their trigger discipline. Their trigger finger is outside the guard. Um, so there's no there's little danger that they'll be shooting each other um, by accident. And Xandar on the previous page at the bottom. Ah, yes. Uh-huh. Um, but but yeah, a small a small detail, but uh, one that I can imagine that uh, Larry might have pointed out. Larry was always very specific about you don't have your finger on the trigger unless you intend to shoot. Mm. And since they're in the middle of negotiations and you're trying to convince the other person you're trying to negotiate, it's a show of faith or, you know, so that that, that was my logic on it. I spy designer sunglasses on the taxi driver in the opening scene where uh, Molto and Lady J are in the back seat. So on page uh, four, one, two, three, four, uh, page four, panel three, we're looking past the taxi driver. So he's he's just, some of his head is cropped in the front um, and we see his eye looking back at these two Joes and there's a little insignia on the side of his sunglasses. Shannon, is that is that something particular? I think there were Armani glasses that I based it on. When Larry sent out the script, he also sent out references, and apparently, like one of the trends in Thailand is the gangs there are dressed like Filipino gangs or Chicano gangs. Uh, the Filipino gangs just like Chicano gangs from the states, like from California. I'm sorry, not Filipino. Uh, Thai gangs. And so Larry sent all these references of these guys that are dressed up like that, and very much wanted that, you know, that to be a detail. And so. One of the things I notice is these guys always kind of want to flash their bling. You know, they, they have like the huge expensive watches, that, you know, jewelry, necklaces. And so I figured, okay, if that's, if this guy's part of that gang. He's not going to wear plastic sunglasses from the 7-Eleven. He's going to go out and buy branded stuff. So it's, it's to feed into the character to establish, helps establish the, that character set and similarly i spy on page nine uh one of al cabra's uh gang members who gets shot by molto has a a, a dodgers t-shirt la dodgers yeah and that, again that's part of that whole you know they it, it always seems like everybody's always wearing stuff from the states even though they hate us so much so it was throw some of that in there mark do you have a oh you uh, do you have any do you have any more i spy I don't have any more. I was, I was going to ask um, Shannon if there was anything that uh, that we've we've not spotted that that he's um, tucked away in there. Uh, no, I mean most of this like this stuff that I'll do is really more for me. Um, like yeah. uh, was it Xandar or whatever? His headscarf that he's got mm-hmm. wrapped. So sometimes I'll try like when I'm looking at the model sheets, you know, from the the '80s things, you know, from the cartoons that they put out. I can't remember the name of it, but it's like it's those two volume sets that they have, or it's all the model sheets. No, uh, no. F- yeah. field manual. Field manual. So I'll look at the model sheets and I'll be like, oh, I don't really like the way that looks. Maybe I can alter it to look a little more reality based, or like something someone would be wearing now. But I had just finished watching the live action Way of the House Husband TV show from Japan, and one of the characters wears a big headscarf, but it's like it, he has this massive amount of hair, so it kind of like rises up way above his head. And it becomes his signature element, like it's almost above it, you know, just above his eyes, and to where it's almost acting like a, a, you know, a brim on a hat or something. 
And so I was like, that's a cool look. I'm going to steal that. So it's little <laughs> stuff like that that I put in more for me than anything. Or the scene where they're climbing out of the thunder machine after it's been hit by the van. You'll see the um, Sally is tugging on her skirt. There was a <laughs> That's so she can get into that pose. There was a Japanese TV show that I was watching from the 80s, like one of the Metal Hitler shows, and there's a lady cop, and her signature thing became like before she'd you know, go into her stance to shoot people, she'd tug on her skirt so that she could spread her legs and be more stable. And she started doing it like every show, like it was her thing. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to throw that in there. And it's stuff that I think is amusing. It makes me giggle. And no one else in the world is going to catch. Mm. It's just, you know, maybe there's like one other tokusatsu fan out there that's going to catch the reference. But yeah, a, a lot of this stuff is just me. I, I spy uh, two more things. Uh, one, Xandar is holding the weapon that he came, that his action figure came with. Mm. So not only an appearance by a character we haven't seen in a long time, but, uh, you know, he could easily be sort of carrying many other weapons um, but it, it is that it is that thing that his toy came with. Uh, and then I spy on the second to last and third to last and fourth to last pages, and also the page where we first see the nuke. This is something that Shannon does, which I appreciate. An element in the extreme foreground that compositionally breaks up the panel. So the fourth, third, mm. and second to last pages, it's a it's some kind of like bar or or rigging or like window pane. Um, yeah, it's like one of the masks on the okay. cargo ship. On that yeah. second to last page, it very nicely cuts the panel in half, so you have this added visual separation between the bad guys on one side and the good guys on the other side. But it also is is just one more tool in the toolkit of the storyboard artist or the comic book artist to create visual depth. So foreground, middle ground, background, or extreme foreground foreground middle ground background and uh, since we're seeing uh, chuckles here this reminds me of i forget what what issue it was 209 maybe there's a cover that shannon drew with chuckles with a pistol drawn and there's like a ceiling lamp Mm. hanging from the top of the cover that is i think mostly in silhouette and it's this it's this foreground element right like the scene in the like the pit cafeteria around that time uh when the joes see that uh uh, there's this hostage situation. That, yeah, that's one nine three is the cafeteria, and that was yeah one nine one was the the chuckles cover for those people wanting to look it up. Thank you. Uh, Sh- this is this is a thing that Shannon does in uh, in GI Joe comics. Uh, that's a very small thing that I appreciate, and I think you have to have some confidence in your drawing to cover up eight percent of your panel with a thing with like a black vertical thing when you could just as easily leave it out and maybe the image is a little prettier like oh the art's gonna sell or there's just one less obstruction um but uh you know film directors will put the camera like on one side of a window or through a keyhole or etc um so for for creating visual interest i like it cool uh so yeah we done i spy Normally, we would then have error detected, but my list is blank. I got a tiny one. (gasps) Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. Uh, This is a color. This is color. 
page okay. four. I won't kill you. <laughs> yeah, chuck that guy okay. on the bus. That's alright. I'll put away the map of where I hide bodies. Uh, page four, <laughs> top panel. Chuckles is looking back. Roblox is sticking out the window, and uh, Black Hat is uh, sort of come up from the back of the van. Um, I think it's Chuckles' left hand on the steering wheel, but it's colored as if uh, those are red fingernails. So I, I think Brown, mm. Jay Brown, for a panel, thought that um, uh, Black Hat was helping to steer the car. I don't know. But she's not. <laughs> Subtle. Not my drawing. But sometimes you get in a hurry. It's kind of like when you're, when you're doing hand lettering, you forget how to spell your own name. Yeah, no, no prize. Uh, Chuckles is kind of one of those guys, you know. Yeah, he, he like might have guitarist who, uh, you know, might might uh, <laughs> might paint one of his hands of uh, of uh, you know uh, nail varnish just to to fruit things up a little bit while he's uh, stationed overseas away from uh, loved ones. Um, <laughs> he, he is in Thailand. It could have been one of the bars, you know. It could have been. I mean, he's guys. <laughs> He's wearing a Hawaiian shirt, right? Like, he's always ready to stick out in a crowd, so. Stop! Have a time! Time to beat the soles of your boots with my face. Sucking chest wounds, red ninjas, brain scanners, rubber hooses, blue ninjas. And then some more sucking chest wounds. Have a time! So, uh... This is the segment where we look at some uh, hammerisms of, uh, of things in uh, in his dialogue or, or um, a story that uh, are favourites for for reuse. So I had a couple. There was uh, there was the calling Multo and Jay in their disguise. They called themselves the uh, anarcho sycophants or anarcho syndicalist front. So yeah, Larry always has fun with with uh, the names of the different sorts of uh, terrorist cells that someone might potentially uh, belong to. So uh, another another fun one there. We had uh, comms being jammed as as well, which uh, happened last issue, which is why it stuck out to me. But uh, a useful narrative device to separate the uh, the two teams, one one of whom may know something that the others uh, don't. Anything from from you guys? Uh, Mardus. Yeah, we got we got Mardus. Check. It's a roadblock appearance. We're gonna have to call out. But the, uh, he the doesn't Mardus. call it that. Chuckles does. Yeah, a good way of calling attention to a fact that that roadblock has got it to, to hand for when it needs to uh, be whipped out in a hurry later on. Because nothing says easy and portable and whipped out like a Mardus. I mean, when when you have roadblock, a... by comparison, it is easy to and portable. And, and yeah, we we don't we don't see the uh, the, the scene of, of Roblox arriving at his destination here in Southeast Asia, where he presumably got this uh, uh, Marduk across the border in a diplomatic pouch as well. So I, I don't know if this is I don't I don't think this is a Hamaism yet. I think this might be sort of a more recent thing. But uh, remember the two issues where the Joes go to Comic Con in San Diego. Um, mm-hmm. So he, yeah, Shannon uh, drew that one. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this this bit here where El Cabra's gotten away and they're all in the van, they've all piled into the van, and uh, Molto says, "I thought a lot of hackers were multilingual." And Black Hat says, "Much of my parents' chagrin. I don't even speak Hindi, but my Klingon is passable." And I feel like this didn't happen in the '80s Marvel series, um, but 
has happened a little bit in the IDW series. And I'm, I'm just thinking vaguely of those two issues at, at Comic-Con. I think because like nerd culture has so caught up with and become pop culture, right? Like Comic-Con is just on the cover of Entertainment Weekly magazine. And like everyone's just talking about like seasons of shows back, you know, when I was a kid, no one talked about like seasons of shows. It's like, oh, are the new episodes on? It's like, no, 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 it's in season six. It's in scene seven. Oh, well, it dropped during season five. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, and all the, all the Marvel movies and et cetera. I feel like having a reference to a Joe knowing some Klingon, it's not a homism, but I feel like it's a, it, it could be. You know, if the series runs for another hundred issues, I feel like we might learn one or two more things about other characters who make this kind of reference. Was was there anything that that you noted that was a particular Harry, Larry Hammer signifier that that you wanted to call out here, Shannon? No, I mean you know because when I'm doing the scripts or drawing the book, I I don't get a lot of the dialogue, so mm-hmm. a lot of what he he you know his, his Hammerisms, if you want you know as you're calling it that, usually all I notice is whatever gun is is this week or whatever. Oddball piece of military equipment because he'll pick really obscure stuff, like the the machine gun that has the round magazine on top. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I found one extra picture than the one he sent, you know, and it's kind of like, okay, this is not a common thing. I mean, so it just makes my life, you know, more difficult. But <laughs> that that would be my homilism is the fact that he picks the most obscure rifle that you can possibly find and then expects me to draw it from 40 different angles i got uh, i got one more actually or, or sort of a reverse one um bottom panel of page 16 they're chasing the thunder machine and roadblock is up on the roof of the yellow rental van and he says i'm trying to blow their tires good thing that twin gatling isn't on a turret mount so this i don't think this is poking fun of the toy design i think this is you know uh, uh, the, the homism would be uh when the joes are like like we have to get up the hill like oh there's a there's a there's a gun or a howitzer or something up on the hill or the wall that can't its turret can't can't aim down at us it's like we can go under its angle of fire so this sort of um mm-hmm. this acknowledgement of the limitations of uh how a projectile weapon can actually aim or point very good there used to be a pudding that was over-egged. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. At first it was British, but then it was Commonwealth. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. But now there's a new player in town. A comic book writer of, of some renown. He's using real-world examples and peppering the issues with with lots of samples. It's a Larry Hammer colloquialism. He's talking G.I. Joe and all its heroism. Can you guess what it is? Is it something new? Now listen as Larry drops a slice of real life on you. Colloquialism. So so little bits of uh, jargon or dialogue or uh, whatnot that might not be so recognisable. I spotted Ferengs which uh makes sense in the in the context but um tim do you know what this one means no i was waiting for you to look it up and tell us <laughs> so this is uh thai for foreigners so um yeah once you're out in thailand i think 
it's one of those uh, bits of uh, yeah bits of lingo that you'll see referenced quite frequently. Farangs, foreigners. Um, yo, Joage, um, you know, this is where we'll say our overall thoughts score. And obviously with uh, Shannon here, we're on the on the spot a little bit. But uh, yeah. I think when I'm when I'm when I'm enjoying something, I'm not afraid to uh, to to um, to you know be out and proud about it. So <laughs> so I, I really enjoyed this this issue. There was very little to, to poke holes in or find find fault with. You know, it's it's up there with the with the very best of the IDW uh, run, and and this uh, overall arc is is shaping up to to be uh, a, a favourite that you know not just among ourselves, but seeing it um, on on the various message boards and comments, even on on our own Facebook group, lots of enjoyment of it. So, yeah, I think I'd I'd go probably eight. I don't know that there's there's an awful lot to 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 add. There's it's a you know great looking book. Fun story. Good to see some uh, reappearances of some some old characters. Yeah, I, I've said this before. I, I I wish the IDW series were not printed on glossy paper, and I wish the color approach were more old fashioned. And for those reasons, uh, it may be difficult for an IDW GI Joe issue to get a nine or a ten. So this gets a very very enthusiastic eight. Uh, and also, as we said at the beginning of the show, uh, I like all the covers, but not even one of them connects with the issue. In terms of the guts, the pace of this is just motors. It juggles a lot of characters, uh, some characters that we haven't seen, characters we haven't seen in a while, and uh, shows us a place that we haven't seen, but is also familiar uh, it has a fun, uh, not quite twist ending, but a, a, a small surprise in sort of that they deal with, how they deal with the the weapon, and then, you know, these final two panels. Uh, great action, great choreography, uh, great poses, facial acting, uh, body acting, and, and both a chapter of uh, a larger arc and also a very satisfying issue all into itself, right? I, I, I think about in rating an issue of G.I. Joe, like how would I feel giving this issue to someone to read who's either never read G.I. Joe or never read comics? And I think a lot of people wouldn't be interested necessarily in reading the 283rd issue of a comic. Although if it, you know, if it's a five issue series, they probably also wouldn't want to read issue three. But um, this works both as a part of a larger story, a part of the larger sort of forever Joe story, and also just an excellent you know, it's kind of just an issue of special missions, particularly since they're not dealing with sort of the mainline Cobra villains and they're not in costume except for Chuckles. And I love me some special missions. So a very enthusiastic eight. Very good. Um, Jenny, you're welcome to give it give it a score. <laughs> uh, as Butch would say, it's crap. <laughs> oh, dear. Own worst critic. Next up, we have got Innuendo. This is how the story goes. Attention. At this moment, you are now listening to... Talking Innuendo. If you are offended by words like... Sucking. Flesh wound. Willy. Pete. Balls. Crystal balls. Hypno shield. Whatever. Take the tape out now. This is not a pop album. And by the way... 
Suck my grandmother's brick in a Prada handbag. So if you're in the right frame of mind, and uh, specifically my frame of mind, or possibly Shannon's frame of mind, a lot of G.I. Joe names can sound pretty dirty. Um, so the aim of this segment is to just read out a set of five regular G.I. Joe names, maybe with a slight intonation to make them sound funnier, and, and see if I can make my co-host and guest titter. That's right, I said titter. So um, here we go. Get the idea. I'm going to read out some names and uh, you have to try and not laugh, but also I'm very happy if you do. So here we go. Bottom line. Burnout. Red spot. Breaker. Covergirls Wolverine. And that's oh, the five. The last one was close. <laughs> what, who or what is Red Spot? Yeah. Uh, Red Spot is one of the uh, later editions uh, around about that G.I. Joe versus Cobra, possibly Venom versus Valor era. Huh. Uh, yeah, 2003, four ish, that kind of. Uh, there we go. I've been defeated. Uh, Shannon, this is this is where I say to the guest who draws great G.I. Joe comics and who uh, isn't necessarily uh -huh. on the schedule to draw more G.I. Joe comics, I hope you come back to. Uh, this office at IDW and draw some more G.I. Joe comics. I know it's, I know drawing comics is hard. Drawing this book is its own particular set of significant challenges. And, uh, you know, this, this is not, this is not like the top selling book uh, and fans are pretty persnickety. Um, so it, it's, you know, it may not be as rewarding as it, you know what was in a different era or could be in a different set of circumstances but uh you draw some wonderful gi joe comics and your own critique aside uh i think you are uh you are you are and when you come back to do more i hope can uh, will will be an important part of the the gi joe storytelling pantheon i appreciate that dude. Uh, you know it's up to the fans if they bug tom tom will give them what they need, I guess. So, yeah. Just bug Tom. <laughs> Send him irate emails. Tell him you hate Andrew as much as I do. <laughs> there we go. That's launched the avalanche. Uh, brilliant. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, so you you know, the door's still, from, from your perspective, the door is uh, still open and it's not barred shut with various bits of wood and chairs and thunder machines and nuclear warheads blocking the way from uh, from you ever drawing G.I. Joe again. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, it's fun. It, you know, who doesn't enjoy drawing just bang up stuff? Excellent. Yeah, well, well, fingers crossed. Uh, you know, I would love to see you uh, return, uh, return to the, the book. It's always, uh, it's all, we're, you know, we're always in for a treat. Uh, from uh, from an art perspective, uh, if nothing else, <laughs> we're yeah. I mean the the book it's it's you know it seems to have hit a a good pace in terms of um, doing something different, establishing new new uh, characters, uh, different different themes, and and sort of um, you know treading treading new grounds, sort of beyond that kind of dawn um, blue blue ninja. <sighs> an other ninja kind of uh, element that that I think that we probably felt we would seen a little bit uh, uh, you know 
enough of. I think we were satiated in, in terms of the amount of blue ninjas that, that we had. So um, I think everyone is enjoying this, uh, uh, you know, a, a fresh kind of stream of uh, material that is being uh, being mined in in these last uh, in la- these last few few issues. Is there anything else that we should be looking out for from from you, Shannon? And and also, where can people find out more about you and and uh, you know see your stuff? Uh, well, I the next I literally just finished yesterday uh, pencils for a, it's either going to be two issues or one single extra long issue uh, of Godzilla versus Mothra, and it's set in 1984. So there was a lot of research on my end into Japan 1984 and what people were wearing and what the military was using and what people were driving. And I've always been a big Godzilla fan, so that that was a lot of fun for me. Uh, Other than that, unless you're in the UK or or Australia, you you can find me in Beano, which has kind of become a regular thing for me. Um, Classic kids comic in the UK. And what strip are you, what strip are you? um, They they bounce me around, but right now. Is it everything or? Yeah, uh, they bounce me around, but right now they've introduced a new set of characters called the Har Har's, which is a family that owns a joke shop. Um, and so I'm doing the strips that go with the Har Har family. Uh, uh-huh. So yeah, it, that's what I've been doing. And then if you want to find me, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter or, you know, my Facebook page is public, but it's all SL Gallant. Um, so you can easily find me just by typing that in and track me down and I post. I try to post stuff like once a day, or at least a couple of times a week. A lot of it's Bino, and then there's right now there's a lot of Godzilla stuff on it. So. Is there? That's about um, it. Uh, you did some Pink Panther stuff for American myth- Mythology, mm. that small publisher. Mm. Um, that that wrapped up. Is there is there any of that more in your future? With American Myth, I'll probably keep tossing covers and stuff because I'm friends with with the guy that runs the company. Um, but the Pink Panther stuff, they're that was a lot of fun for me, but no, I don't. There weren't, there aren't any plans of me doing anything for Pink Panther right now. I was going to say, just in terms of the, you know, the more of the cartooning in, in Pink, Pink, Pink Panther and the the Beano um, work, does uh, versus working on something like GI Joe, does that feel like it's the same thing, or or, or does, is it? Does it feel like it's almost two entirely different things and and approaches in terms of? How, how you come up the work I try to approach the cartoon stuff with more of like a a comic book eye if that makes sense like I've always hated the fact that comic strips are so flat that's you know what I love about Bill Watterson's work on Calvin and Hobbes was it felt like a comic book but with comic strip characters and so Beano's that same way like when I'm drawing Beano I'm trying to add like odd camera angles and things like that so there's a lot of crossover mm. as far as the style change I my, you know, before I really got back into comics, uh, I was an on-staff illustrator. So at an ad agency, and you had to draw whatever they asked you to draw. So I'd, I'd go from doing storyboards of, you know, I've said this before in other interviews of old people walking in the park talking about their colorectal exam, to drawing Kool-Aid Man, you know, who is also a cartoon character. So it's it goes it goes all over the place. So changing up styles isn't isn't anything I worry about. Uh, but I do try to have some crossover as far as like aesthetic qualities or you know just the design aspects of things, so it doesn't it doesn't feel flat. 
Do you have plans for a uh, first convention appearance back now that uh, states are reopening and people are getting vaccinated? Right now, I'm, I'm hemming and hawing on whether or not I'm going to try and go to Baltimore Con, which is in October. One, because that's local for me because I'm in, in Washington, D.C. Um, my plan before everything happened was to try and get over to the U.K. to do like Thought Bubble or something like that because I have a lot of friends in the U.K., but also because I've been doing so much Beano stuff mm. um, just to kind of like, you know, get in front of the fans on that side of the, of the Atlantic. But right now, that's that's kind of a pipe dream because everything's still kind of, you know, playing out and waiting for the pieces to fall into place as far as where where you can travel, where you can't. But yeah, the first one, if it, if it happens, will probably be Baltimore. Okay, yeah. If you do ever make it over to the UK, it would be uh, great to see you. And Thought Bubble is is yeah a great Mark, great show. Mark has been known to yeah. go to Thought Bubble and to hand money to artists so they will draw for him. <laughs> and then him specifically. Uh, Mark Mark has specifically done that, and then he then he talks about it yeah, on yeah. the internet later that he <laughs> met an artist and he was drawing, and let's talk about it. Nice, that works. Yeah, and actually, I went to uh, I went to dinner with the DC Thompson crew uh, last uh, the last Thought Bubble uh, because uh, I was I was assisting um, Ian Kennedy, who uh, does a lot of the uh, covers for Commando magazine. Oh, okay. Were, were anybody from the Pino in there, or was it just the the Commando guys? It, um, I, I think there was some crossover. One, certainly, one of the guys have, you know, some of the guys have worked on both public publications. Um, one of them described the fact that he'd done so much work on the on the Beano that he used to dream in black and red stripes. <laughs> It'll have that effect. <laughs> it seems like all the characters are in that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think what, what remains for us to, to, to say is to thank you very much, uh, Shannon, for for making the time for us and, and talking through and uh, this issue and spending the time today, but but also uh, the years of good service that you uh, have put in for for us um, GI Joe uh, comics here, fans. Here. Thank you, I appreciate that. Okay, so uh, next time on Talking Joe podcast on the Disavowed Show, we will be talking about. The Devil's Due versus Transformers series uh, from around about 2003. Uh, back here on this regular show, we'll be covering the latest issue as it comes out. G.I. Joe ARA 284 is due 14th of July, so that may happen uh, on that date. Um, and then we'll discuss it shortly afterwards. Uh, you can find about us in all of the usual places, talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that has links to all of those places like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and contact details, as well as a link to our Patreon. A big thanks to backers Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, and Justin, who are getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. And Tim, where can people find out more about you? A realamericanbook.com. That's concise. Sometimes I do the short so with all that said and done you can catch us down the road we've been talking joe and we're all out of jokes you you can insert this later mark since you forgot again this is where you ask we ask me <laughs> you ask me where people can find me on the internet
whole snap. <laughs>